Hi, everybody. Welcome to Stratosphere Lounge. I'm your host, Bo Whittle, streaming uh, live on uh, two separate uh, platforms to two separate uh, social media giants. Uh, we're on Twitch and we're on YouTube Live, or Live-ish. And um, we do that because, as I mentioned earlier, thanks to Marusha Dark, pointed out that um, <clears throat> that uh, Twitch doesn't like people streaming to other streams while it's being streamed to, which is not unreasonable, I suppose. Um, if you're, you know, control freak. Um, sound is way unbalanced. Well, I don't know if there's much I can do about that. Um, what I have been doing for the last several... Um, Stratosphere Lounge shows, one of the reasons why I just put up 374, so I've got a backlog of things. Um, what I have been doing is um, I take the recorded show and um, and I uh, put it through uh, Adobe Audition and I take out the noise and then I um, add a, a compression and then I um, re-import it back into, uh, into Premiere, add a little bit of treble output that and it's much much higher quality audio wise uh, and when I do that I clone the two channels over so they're balanced can't do that now can't, can't I've, I've played with it forever and I can't do anything about it so um, we're gonna have to live with this uh, appalling uh, state of things as, as they are at least for the time being and a first-time chat from Commander Rico hello Bill hello Commander Rico I love seeing first-time chats it's just great um, so a couple things um, and I expect we'll probably get into questions pretty early for this uh, this evening as well. Um, one of them is uh, just a little bit of business from um, Monday's show, which I'm behind on as well. I have those things um, processed and up. But um, we were going to call, I was talking about calling the interview show um, Archetypes. And on Monday I discussed the idea that I'm a little concerned that this is... Um, a little bit too limiting, you know, trying to, um, trying to, uh, oh, what's the word, that expression, Just trying to cram everything into, into these categories. And I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do about that? Um, and then, uh, so I was kind of in, in limbo when we left the show on Monday night about what to do with that. I'm back to archetypes uh, and I'll tell you why. First of all, it adds a lot of structure to things, but mostly because I did a little bit of research and this is where the internet is. The greatest thing in the world, as well as being the um, the most awful thing in the world. Um, I took a look at, uh, I, I did a Google search for character archetypes, and it turns out there's either eight or 12, I think, um, that are um, considered, I think there's eight classical archetypes that are, um, that, that, you know, that Plato talked about and, and Aristophanes and all of those groovy dudes. So these, these, Again, I think it's a classical archetypes have been around forever, and they would be things like the hero, the mage, the wizard, the, you know, the teacher, uh, the ruler, um, uh, the jester. These are kind of the classical archetypes. And I thought, well, that's just way too limiting. So then I did uh, another search, and, um, and I found one that said, uh, 220 archetypes that you need to know for your movie. And of the 220, there were many of them that were not included in the classical archetypes that I thought were very good, but there were a bunch of them that I just thought were kind of silly too. So I'm thinking, how do I do this? And I just realized, grab all the archetypes you could find, Bill, pour them into a bucket, and pick the ones you want. 
And I expect I'm probably going to have 60, 70, something like that. Um, the best friend is a, is a, is a movie archetype. Um, the drunk doctor is a movie type. Now, that one I might ditch. But um, I think with that, that'll, that'll really help. And that way I can, uh, if I want to talk about a specific movie with, with one of these people, I can just say, okay, now let's talk about the, uh, you know, the explorer archetype. or the, uh, One of them is the innocent um, you know, the, the, the character with that kind of internal innocence. The common man is one. So I can basically say, <laughs> David Booty says, a bucket full of archetypes with Bill Whittle. You know, I actually got to tell you, pal, that's got, um, that's got a real, real good feel to it. Um, some variation on that, maybe. That's a, that, that's, because I don't want this thing to sound too academic, you know. Bucket of archetypes, something, something a little, a little more flip, a little more um, arch. So I'll be thinking about that. Uh, very excellent uh, suggestion as usual. Um, now, uh, so that's that should solve that problem, and um, and and keep us on. And that way, I can uh, do the research for whatever uh, person I'm going to be interviewing, which consists mostly of watching the movies with the notepad and making notes of where you know. Um, interesting things happen. So I can actually, like, for example, one of them that I didn't see that I'm going to add was uh, an archetype called the Stoic. And I realized that, um, and another one that I might add is the, the, the reborn or the remade or the um, something along those lines. Because I was thinking about talking to Gary and and what the essence of Lieutenant Dan is is the is the reborn, uh, and the essence of Ken Mattingly is the stoic. So that's what's interesting to me about about the way Mattingly was played in Apollo thirteen. And so you know, and I I can keep adding them obviously, but what I actually thought I would do is um, just do like a you know for a um, I don't want opening graphics or anything, but just maybe for the uh, intro video on the on the home page or or maybe before we start everything if i had you know if i had uh, well let's just say i had 60 archetypes um and i put each one of them up there for one frame that'd be a two second long blast one frame's probably too much two would be fine so maybe each one because that's just barely fast enough to see. You're not supposed to be able to really, you know, like ponder it. You sure as hell don't want to sit through this long list. So it's just going to be like, you know, just to give you an idea that there's a bunch of them out there. So anyway, it looks like I solved that problem. That's good news. Um, in other news, uh, we were a day late with our um, uh, members only show this week. Uh, wasn't last night. It was the night before I went to bed as usual, woke up in the morning and woke up by this pain in my mouth. And I don't know what caused it, but this incisor here, this left incisor, was so sensitive. Um, Eric Blake is uh, saying website tvtropes.org. Let me just get that before I forget. I hate interrupting the story in the middle of a story, but uh, maybe one I've already looked at, uh, but I will take a look at it now. Um, thank you. If I don't do it now, I will forget it. It's 
so thanks for that. Um, so anyway, TV tropes that are, I guess that's what I meant. Okay, so great, thanks. I'll add that to the list. Anyway, um, yeah, I woke up with just this like this crazy sharp pain just on my left incisor, and any kind of pressure on it at all was just just agony, you know, really, 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 really hurt. And uh, I was fine when I went to bed, and um, all I can think of is that I must have been having myself one of my groovy little nightmares or something, and, and bit down hard enough. I thought that I had fractured, I thought that I'd broken the root of the incisor, which I did not like uh, the idea of. So I immediately went crying to my beautiful wife. <laughs> my uh, and um, and she was saying you should you know, try a uh, hydrogen peroxide uh, rinse in the mouth. And I said, well, you know, honey, it's I, I know it's not an infection because infections don't happen that way. They don't, they don't go from, from zero to 60 in, in four hours, you know. But I did it anyway, and that really seemed to help. It seemed to, like, diffuse the, the, the sharp pain and, and just kind of spread it out all over my mouth. Plus, I think when I did the first... Uh, a hydrogen peroxide uh, mouthwash rinse, I, I think I might have over-saturated it or under-diluted it. I know hydrogen peroxide is interesting. At a certain concentration, it's, a, it's an uh, antiseptic. At a higher concentration, it's a hair dye, and at a really high concentration, it's rocket fuel. So you really do want to get that mixture correct. So I felt like I kind of burned the inside of my mouth. That was yesterday, better today. But it was, um, oh, it was, that hurt. Badly, and I haven't got the slightest idea what it is, other than the fact that I must have just just bit down on something. Didn't bite the inside of my mouth or my tongue or anything. Just just this one tooth, not the other one either. Just bam. Uh, 1776, I think, is the most likely explanation. He says it might be an alien implant. I think that's probably it. Um, you know, and all I have to say about that is if you're gonna if you're gonna do the tooth, the least you could do is you know is a is a just a a, a probe, some kind of friendly probe, you know, just just so I didn't feel so um, cheap. Uh, Cody Fett with a super chat there for, uh, says, a lot of people get tens of thousands of views on interviews where they just record both webcams and slap on a title for the individual video. You don't need to overthink this. But Cody, I overthink everything. That's my brand. Um, and not to be... Uh, Flip, especially since you're so generous with the super chats, it's it, it, of course the don't overthink it thing is is is, a, is grand advice, but I I don't want it to be like all these other interviews. I want it to be about something, and not even honestly, not even so much for the for the viewers, although that's obviously who the show is eventually for. I just think it's much easier to recruit people, especially actors, especially known actors, if you can tell them that this is going to be different than your so what's your favorite color or what was it like working with Tom Hanks kind of um, kind of thing that we're going to talk about the, the, the craft we're going to talk about the creation of the character and and I really do like that term I came up with the idea that the actors are translators um, from the like the, the wild extremes of the human condition to more or less normal people and I, so I'm feeling pretty good about that so that's all actually pretty good um <laughs> I don't want to go too far with this either, but just thinking about Dave Big Booty's uh, comment, or Big Booty's comment. Um, uh, maybe we'll call it Bill Whittle's big bucket of archetypes. Um, big bustling bucket of archetypes. 
Uh, we'll figure something out. Anyway, so I got that solved. Yeah, so there's two things. Just hurt like the devil. And um, let me see here. I'm sorry, Vincent DeTomaso. Hey, Bill. Other live streams, I see the, the tile in YouTube hours before they go live, but never for yours. Is that a YouTube option somewhere? You know, it might be. Um, Vincent, I um, we... I always, I always turn. So we we got to YouTube streaming relatively late. We've been on um, Twitch for forever, for years and years. And before that, we were on what was that god awful software that they made you pay? Uh, Stream uh, Streamlabs or something? God, I hated that. That was just absolutely horrible. So now we go through OBS to um, Twitch. OBS makes a multiple streaming thing called a desktop. Uh, and we were happy campers. I just could have put a, put a list of all the you know, target destinations I wanted to stream to. And then we find out about, you know, it was just dropping the YouTube stream. I think, if I understood correctly, Twitch basically got in there and and and, and grabbed YouTube stream by the hair and said, you bitch, and, and, and basically just, you know, smacked the crap out of it. And, and then the YouTube stream just goes running off into the night out to its car and, and drives away. Um, but... Uh, the reason um, that I don't start the YouTube stream earlier, because I start the Twitch stream, generally speaking, haha, the regulars are going to laugh at this, but I try to start that about 10 minutes before 6, and generally go live around 5 after, or 6 after, 10 after at the latest, or sometimes a quarter after. Just let people kind of know we're coming. Uh, the problem with that is, is that we have a, uh, a long tradition of, um, uh, of playing... Um, walk-in music for um, for the show. And the reason this is a problem is because Twitch doesn't record that, but YouTube does. And if I were to, if I were to broadcast, well, I found this out through trial and error. If I start playing that walk-in music on YouTube, it will cut the stream the second it hears one or two copyrighted pieces of music. Well, they're all copyrighted. I just play them I'd love to have recorded them. I'd love to record I Know a Place, which is a theme song for the Stratosphere Lounge and has been since we started in 2014, so nearly 10 years ago. I'd love to be able to have that at the beginning of every episode. But if I do that, it's not even a question of demonetize because the show doesn't get seen by a whole lot of people, but only the best people. Uh, but, you know, it's copyright strikes and, and all of that garbage with, with uh, YouTube. So... The, the short answer to your question is, if I had a solution for this, I would start the stream and I'd have a title card that says, you know, beginning in 30 minutes or, you know, like, like other people who are good at this. Um, and that gives people, you know, running start to, to show up. Um, we do post on the Facebook page. I, I have missed it, you know, probably seven, eight times, eight or nine times over the course of the last several years. But generally speaking, uh, on the Facebook page, I, I confirm that we're going to do the Stratosphere Studio or Stratosphere Lounge on that night. Or if I either postpone it, I'll say we're going to move it to the next night. Or if I have to cancel it, I at least put that message up. And um, so the Facebook page is generally the place to go. More often than not, we're here. We don't have a super great um, on-time or on-arrival record as far as sticking to the dates. I would say probably... I don't know, 60 or 70% of the shows that we do actually go out at the time they're supposed to go out and the rest of them get moved around because 
reasons. Anyway, I'm still curious to know what the hell happened to my toothy, my toothy tooth, but it's better today. Woke me up last night, though, um, and uh, I don't know. It was like it, it was like I imagine getting punched with a knuckle right on this tooth because any kind of pressure was just like this electric kind of pain. And I've never, I've not been able to figure out what that could have been. But um, we only cry about it just for entertainment purposes. Uh, and now that we've uh, basically, uh, you know, gotten our seven minutes of content out of it, I think it's time to move on about the, uh, the, the tooth issue. Um, so, um, now this is interesting. Uh, Castellico, sorry, Castellan, uh, like I said, the reason it's not so much vanity or anything, although God knows that is a big power source for me, um, it's that when I've got these things on with all these lights, it's just difficult to see my eyes, and that's where the fear is, so I know everybody wants to be a part of that. Um, uh, yeah, Castellan says, uh, copyright is so broken, I know a place is copyrighted. Copyright should have expired about 30 years ago. It does seem so, doesn't it? Now, I don't know if I've ever tried it with um, I Know a Place, but again, you know, um, well, that would at least allow us a little bit of a little bit of runtime, lead in time for um, for YouTube. And by the way, all of these things on the walk in are, are ancient. You know, they're, they're 60s TV shows. Um, it's pretty much exclusively 60s TV shows. And one day in my abundant spare time. I'm going to really re-up that walk-in tape. We've been using it forever, um, and it's time for a um, it's time for a, a, a reboot. Plus, there's a lot of cool themes on there that, that that aren't on there. First one that comes to mind is the Wild Wild West. I just love that show. So anyway, um, that's enough of the crossing of the streams and talking about the um, Monday night stuff. So um, we will now go ahead and get into the uh, political arena. Um, I have been seeing, uh, well, I saw something today that, I mean, I've been aware of this, but it, it really is, it really is something to actually hear somebody actually say it, actually come out of their mouth. I saw this on um, Odin's Men. It's kind of a scrawny, stringy-looking, you know, gamma, gamma male with long hair and uh and and this person said i want to be the first um tr transgender woman to abort a baby and i thought that is that is really really deeply disturbing on so many levels um on one level this whole idea that, that that members of the trans community have, or at least some of them have, this delusion—not not the real trans people like um, like Marcus, who I admire very much—that's another person I'd like to interview. Um, but but these lunatics are, are believe that that women transitioning to men will have their uterus removed. And then that uterus will be implanted in men transitioning to women, just like a kidney or a heart or anything else like that. And then that will mean that biological males with XY chromosomes will be able to 
I don't know if that means they think they'll get pregnant, but that means they think that they will be able to carry a baby and, and all the rest of it. And I just thought, you know, honestly, this is as far away from reality as what I perceive the, the people going after AI is. It's just for them. It's just like, yeah, it's just an engineering problem. Just cut out this thing, put that thing in there. If you need to, you know, you need to open up this opening a little bit, just get out the, you know, the the the, the, the power sander or whatever and, and just, you know, do what you need to do. And then congratulations, your mom, you, you, your uh, X, XY male chromosome individual, and you are actually physically having a baby. Not You're not a, a biological woman who claims to be a man, has got a beard, who's having a baby. You're doing all of this. And I thought... You know, just, just, just the hormonal balance, just that alone is so delicate. Um, honestly, it's just so crazy delicate. Um, yes, and, and Joseph Talbot says South Park did that uh, uh, 14 years ago. Yeah, that's right. They sure did. Um they did that exact same thing. And, and it was, you know, it was just, but I, I just kind of want to get to, to, to the nature of, of, of this particular thing, because it is, it is so perverse. It's so perverse. I can, I can understand on some level, the emotional need of people who are mentally ill and who think that this might be possible, or, or at least for whom it is an emotional imperative. I can understand, at least I can get my brain around the idea that there could be biological men who are so uncomfortable uh, and dysphoric, although I don't think any of these people genuinely are, that, the, that they have this overwhelming need to be able to have a baby and be a woman and have a baby. I can understand that aspect of it. And because hope is such a powerful motivator, I can understand them clinging to the fact that that I think in Sweden or Norway they did a, a uterine uh, transplant from one woman into another woman. Imagine that. So I'm willing to give them. I'm willing to give them a, a, a. I'm not giving them a pass. I'm just saying at least understand it. But when your entire attitude is you you want to be able to go to all of this trouble, all of this money, which we will pay for, by the way, all of this stuff in order to, to Frankenstein your way into this individual being able to, to um, if not create life, then at least carry life. And all of this simply so that they could then terminate that life. That's just plain horrific. It's just, and, and, and I got the strong impression that this person was not uh, trolling us, so they've got a bit of a world coming to them. One of the, I might have mentioned this before. One of the things I've been watching a bit lately, it's entertaining and um, annoying and edifying all at the same time. I've been watching an awful lot of um, police body cam footage. This this is one of the best things that ever happened in law enforcement. Is this in in terms of protecting the police? is um is wearing these body body cams and so there are channels now a number of them basically the police department doesn't post this stuff but it is available to the public it's something that you can request and 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 get you which i think is a grand idea i think you should be able to be able to just at any time say 
yeah, I'd like to see this guy's body cam footage just for the night. I think I think that's a reasonable um, request for people who, you know, out of control law enforcement is sometimes worse than no law enforcement. Um, and and so I've been seeing an awful lot of these. Now I understand they're being selective, obviously, but lots and lots and lots of cases, and it's almost always young women. I'd say it's probably four out of five of them are, are women, where they they're either drunk or or they're or they're trespassing or they've been pulled over or whatever, and they they are so disconnected from reality that it just the reason i watch it is because i get i get a certain amount of satisfaction watching the theory in in action watching the experimental data come back from the theory the theory being that the wrecking ball of reality is going to catch up with these people because they will they will get pulled over and the policeman will say i, I need you to step out of the car i'm not going to step out of the car well ma'am you're going to either step out of the car voluntarily or else you're going to be arrested. I'm not going to be arrested. You're not you can't arrest me. Well, it turns out they can. And I have also never seen the police not only so polite and restrained, but frankly, in in my opinion, many many times so overcompensatingly accommodating that it actually goes from being admirable to kind of pissing me off a little bit. And and to watch them at first, it's like, what did I do? Did I do anything wrong? And then it's like getting real for them. And then they're just, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. I've got some place to be. And um, and you're not going to be arresting me this evening because I've got somewhere else to be. And they've never been told no in their entire lives ever. They've never heard that word ever. They never said, no, you're not going there. And you're not going to do what you think you're going to do. You're going to do something that you don't want to do. So, so then there's that. And then when they realize they're serious, then they start getting extremely abusive, like really, really, really abusive, you know, to these to these law enforcement officers, really nasty. And then generally once they're had their, and they're bashing their heads in the inside of the car on the way out. And then, and then somewhere along the line before they actually get booked and processed, you can hear the voice change from, you know, you know, Oh, listen, bro, you know, you know, um, you know, you MFR and, 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 and just this kind of, listen, bitch, I'm not doing this, but you know, just, just, just this, this kind of, white liberal ghetto posture, you know, kind of thing. And somewhere along the line, almost always, these women's voices go up about four octaves. And they you can just hear them trying this, this, you know, I'm I'm just a poor little girl out here in the world, you know, I'm just, you know, um, I'm 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 just, you know, I why I I didn't do anything. And it's never their fault ever. Ever, 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 ever. I've seen 15 of these things. Never once, not even once have I heard anybody say anything that remotely sounds like, you're right, I'm that was my fault. I'm sorry. Never. Never. Mm -mm. And and I look at this and I say to myself, we're going as a society, we're gonna have to be we're gonna have a this is the leading edge of a problem that we're gonna have. Uh significant issue with. Um, the good news is they don't find these people particularly dangerous. The bad news is, is that they are four-year-olds in, in grown-up bodies, and and that wrecking ball of reality is going to have to hit all of them sooner or later. Um, and watching them 
get confronted with with them saying, "No, I'm not. You can't arrest me. You can't do that. I have my rights. You can't. You can't arrest me." And then and then watching them get arrested and just the the astonishment on their faces. And furthermore, I think without exception, also every single time the police have been bending over backwards. I saw, I saw one earlier today where the guy said this woman was drunk in a in a apartment rental office and 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 they kept asking her to leave and she kept hanging out there abusing him and the police arrived and she says i'm just here to get my mail and they said well they don't want you here P please leave and this these two policemen spent 20 minutes talking to this woman saying please ma'am if you don't leave you will be arrested he, he said that nine times nine times and and watching it dawn on them that they're not going to get their way this time is really pretty satisfying. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. These people are so entitled. They're so unbelievably entitled that, that, that it's just kind of nice watching, watching them get told no for the first time since they had that very first tantrum in, um, in the Walmart when they were three and they demanded a toy and mom said no. And then they just went down the floor and started kicking and screaming and the top of their lungs rolling around until they got what they wanted. And they've never been stopped by anybody. And parents gave them everything they wanted. Their high schools gave them everything they wanted. Their elementary schools did. Universities did. Now employers are giving them everything they want, making all these accommodations. You know, well, I want this time for social media and I don't, you know, one, one of these, one of these creatures, what was the term she used? Uh, she said she was time, like time non-compliant, or some 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 made-up emotional term. I'm 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 not time specific. So, like I've got this mental condition where I I I just can't show up on time on account of you know being so neurodivergent and all the rest of it. I don't know what's going to happen to these people when the adults are finally dead. I really don't. I, I, but that's kind of why we're here and why we do the show, because, you know, being um, forewarned is forearmed. So time blind. Is that, is that the term? Thank you. You know, three people said I'm time blind. <laughs> That's great. Time blind. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that'll try that in the, um, in the Marine Corps, you know, get up you maggots. It's four thirty in the morning. They're playing revolution. Just staying in the bunk. It's like, Get out of bed. Uh, no, Sarge. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I can't. I'm time blind. I have time blindness. I don't, I, I can't conform to, uh, to a schedule like that. So. Okay. Well, in that case, we're going to have a conversation. Um, time blindness. Yeah, they're all, they, they're just obviously adult children and they behave exactly like children and they can't take it and, and by the way yet, uh, yet another common uh, uh, kind of a through line on all of these cases I, I don't think I've seen a case of a woman being arrested with that where this was an exception um, huh. but in addition to the I didn't do anything followed by that well, explain to me why I, I I have to get out of the car, followed by the um, the abuse, followed by the the, the you know the 
the little girl, um, oh, poor pitiful me thing, every single one of them, every one of them that I've seen is shrieking at the top of their lungs about how the handcuffs are cutting off the circulation and, they're, they're, and, and, and they'll often say, you're murdering me, you're killing me, you know, you threw me on the ground like an animal. Man, we threw you on the ground because you kept resisting and you kicked this officer in the mouth. So that's why we, that's why you got thrown on the ground after we after we begged you to go home for you know fifteen minutes. Yeah, Marisha Dark says I can't breathe. Yeah, and um, and so the, they always end up with this kind of hysterical kind of and, and they, everybody's got a, a particular problem. I've got asthma. I've got this condition. I've got a leg condition. I've got this. It's, I've got I've got this. This this is like a, here. It's like watching him play. You know. Uno or something. He's like, here's my victim card. No, that doesn't do it. Okay, well, here, here's a, here's my next one. Here's my next one. Here's my next one. You put them all down. It's like you're still not going to win. You're not going to talk your way out of this. And all of this is very satisfying. And then I realize I get to the end of this thing, and then it's like, oh well, whatever social good you thought may have just witnessed, Bill. Here comes your punch in the mouth. That probably the the, the relapse of this will cause me to do this in a dream. You will have these people who are doing 110, 120 miles an hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. They are drunk off their butts. They resist arrest. They insult the police. They do everything that I just mentioned, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it, all of it. Then they start smashing up the inside of the police car, and you see at the end of the video their charges. It's like, you know, uh, felony endangerment, felony uh, uh, assault on a law enforcement officer, um, driving under the influence, all, all of these charges. And then it's like... The suspect or was or the defendant was given uh, six months probation, and the other charges were dismissed. And I think, well, okay, keep doing that, Your Honor. Just keep doing that because um, the days of fool around and find out are are rapidly uh, coming to an end. I really believe that. Let's just uh, got a quick question here from J Doc. I think that's about it. We're going to do some questions here. Super chat from J Doc. Uh, what's your stance on uh, Vivek um, Ramaswamy and him tearing down the Department of Education, FBI, and other government organizations? As a young person, I love his energy. Still a Trump supporter as well. Yes. Yes, one hundred percent. Um. So let's take some of these. Federal Department is a great question, actually. So let's just kind of walk our way through the alphabet soup that controls our lives and and see which one of these uh, entities need to survive in some form. They all need to be paired back. And some of them, in fact, probably most of them need to go. But nevertheless, um, so let's let's talk about this. The Department of Education, you can graph very clearly a timeline of, of years where I'm trying to do this in reverse. Yeah. Where, uh, okay. So, um, here's the time, right here. Here's like 1972 or whatever the hell the department of education was, was in invented. And then here's the present day and here's our performance and our performance just does this. And here's the cost of what we spend on education. And that just does this. Ever since we, 79, ever since we've had a Department of Education, every single year, we spend more and more money and get worse and worse results, and there's not been an exception to that, not once ever. Eventually, we will spend infinite amount of money on people who 
can't even grunt. It's the Department of Education that um, that not only is the political muscle behind things like lowering standards and saying it's okay, you know, to have a failure rate of, you know, 40% or in when I did some research on this back in 2017, 16, 17, something like that. In Baltimore, in the public school system, in inner city Baltimore, something like 4% of the kids were reading at their appropriate grade, lo grade level, 4% of the second graders were reading at a second grade level, four or 5% of the sixth graders were reading at a sixth grade level. And they're spending, this is in public elementary and high schools, spending about $15,000 per student per year. And it's enough to make you think Americans are just plain dumb as dirt, but it ain't always that way. It wasn't always that way. We had, we had the best educational system in the world it, even from the beginning of the Republic, late 1700s, throughout the 1800s and the 1900s, but especially in the 1800s, diplomats would send people over to America to see what the result of a, of a population that was educated for free. We had a 95% plus literacy rate in this country. Um, and, and all of this stuff was humming, and we went to the moon. Uh, the, the Soviets uh, put up Sputnik, and then they put up Gagarin, and we just said, we've been asleep at the wheel here, and then within the space of two or three years, between 57 and 60 or so, we just plain got our butts in gear and said, okay, well, we've got to build ourselves some engineers here. And we did and made armies of engineers who went to the moon doing the math in their head. And since then, we get the Department of Education 10 years after the moon landing, and every single year they get dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber. I should not say that, actually, because that is a, an easy trap to fall into. They don't become dumber they become more and more poorly educated, more and more undisciplined, and, and their character suffers. But the raw material is the same, if not better. Um, so the Department of Education needs to go. And the biggest problem with the Department of Education is, and we were talking about, I was talking about this back when there was a, what was that um, universal curriculum thing that they wanted to impose on everybody? What was that thing called? It was the talk of the town four or five years ago. It'll pop up in a second. Department of Education and the Obama administration had uh, a um, common core. Common core. Thank you. Here it comes. Common core. So in the, in the spirit of totalitarians everywhere, um, this highly centralized, extremely top-down authoritarian dictatorship called the Department of Education, backed by the political... Um, cadres, said we should have one federal standard, one federal teaching guideline called Common Core, and every single school in the country will teach this particular curriculum. This is what all second graders in the country will, will be taught. This is what all fifth graders in the country will be taught, and this is how we'll teach them as well. And there are so many problems with Common Core. Oh, it was a gift from the Bush administration, says Andrew DeLay. Well, there was a time when I would have been surprised, but I'm not anymore. Um, so here, here's, there's like a an obvious problem with Common Core, and then there's a less obvious problem with Common Core. The obvious problem with Common Core and the Department of Education is it's a single point of failure. Everybody is being taught the exact same curriculum, and if there's holes in that curriculum, and there are many, or uh, cases where instead of learning about chemistry, you're learning about 
identity politics, and there were many, many, many more of those too. Now you have a system where everybody in the entire country is failing by the same set of rules. Um, the opposite of, uh, of Common Core at the time when Common Core was a hot topic, I was saying, you know, every single, every single school district should have its own curriculum. And then, now hear me out here, then what you do is you compare the graduation rate and especially the test scores from, I think I, I did them, I, I honestly can't remember if it was 3,000 or 30,000 or 300,000. I honestly don't remember how many school districts there are in the country, but it was a lot. So everybody come up with your own curriculums. You progressives in San Francisco, you teach them whatever you want to, however you want to. And people in Kansas will teach them another way. And then you can quantify this by test scores and graduation rates. And then you would be able to say without coercion, here's the breakdown. This is what we got. This is the data from the, the last year. You know, the, um, the, uh, Alachua County, Florida uh, education system um, has the, the, the best test scores and the and the best um, graduation rate. P.K. Young, that was I'm trying to think of the name of that experimental school in Gainesville. P.K. Young, um, I'm sure it's absolute garbage now. Um, and then and then the parents would be able to have access to this information, and then the parents could say to their local school boards, "How come we're not doing as well as they are?" And then they could either continue to go further and further down the hill, or they could start voting for people who are going to say things like, well, we're going to, we're going to take the things that seem to be working there, and there's some interesting stuff happening over in Nebraska, and there's also some interesting stuff happening in New Jersey. We're going to take all of these things together. We're going to put them together. We're going to try that. If it does better, we're going to keep it. If not, we're, going to, we're not. And, um, and, uh, and there you go. So the Department of Education needs to be abolished. I cannot think of any justification for the Department of Education and any idiot, which means it's getting to be fairly rare to find people who could still do this, could put on a very simple graph the amount of money we've spent since we got the Department of Education versus the results that we get out the door. When we were talking about Common Core, I would say that that if, if the product is an educated individual, things like teachers' unions are concerned with the graduation rate. That's their um, metric. L let me rephrase that. It's not the graduation rate, it's graduation volume. When you've got LA Unified School District is the largest teachers' union in the country, and it may be the largest public sector union in the country. It may be in the world. Many years ago, I used to have these numbers much tighter. I just plain had to erase some of those files to make room for new stuff on the internal drive. But I want to say there was something like in, in Los Angeles County alone, where the LA Unified School District is, there was something like 4,000 teachers on the payroll who go, who go to work every day and sit in a teacher's lounge and drink coffee and read magazines. They have been proven to be either sexual deviants or drug users, or just plain incompetent teachers, or violent. But the LA, uh, uh, the teachers union, says that they can't be fired. So in LA County, we're paying, I was, maybe it was 6,000. Four to 6,000 teachers are not only not fired, 
we continue to pay them. We pay them to not teach because that's how bad they are as teachers. Um, I think public sector unions need to go for the same reason that, that Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers in 1981. A public sector union is a, is a negotiation where both parties are on the same side of the table. If you've got a private union and you've got General Motors and you've got the United Auto Workers or whatever the case may be, United Auto Workers wants shorter hours and, and higher pay. The, the company, the motor company, let's say uh, General Motors, wants longer hours and lower pay. And, and, and you get to some kind of an agreement. It's not very efficient, in my opinion, or, or effective for that matter, but it, at least theoretically it works. And generally speaking, it's worked pretty well. But in the public sector union... You've got teachers who want shorter hours and more money, and you've got a government that is not – the people making the decisions not coming out of their own pocket. It's not like General Motors has to write a check for this. In California, teachers say we want more money, and we want shorter hours, and we're doing a much worse job, so pay us more. And the people who make the decision to pay them more say, sure. All you guys have to do is just go out and vote for us. You keep voting for us. We'll keep voting you money out of the treasury and – you know, and 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 there it is, FDR. Eric Blake um, got it just the exact same time as I said it. Even even somebody as progressive and damaging as FDR said this is this is just not not good. Um, Reagan said when when the air traffic controllers went on strike. So look, I'm a conservative, and my dad was a hotel manager. I, when it comes to management versus labor, I am almost always on management side, almost always. It's just how I was raised, and that's my viewpoint on things. But you could make a case that air traffic controllers were being overworked and underpaid. And so what's their remedy? The answer to that is, I don't know. I suspect it's get different people elected to increase their salaries. But when you have something like air traffic control and the controllers threaten to go on strike, if General Motors... If the employees at General Motors go on strike and stop making cars, I can buy a Ford or I can buy a Nissan or I can buy a Hyundai. I can buy – I have other choices. If the air traffic controllers go on strike, I don't get to go to a bunch of other air traffic controllers to get from here to there safely. And it's true for all public sector unions. If, if the LA Unified School District is nothing but union teachers and I want my kids in public school in LA, then – I don't get to go to different teachers or a different union. That's why they're not the same thing, and that's why they, they shouldn't exist. I would just get rid of all of them. And if they think that they're not getting paid enough, then they can elect city council members or whatever who can raise their salaries. But uh, in any event, you know, David Booty says government schools, not public schools. We used to have public schools. Um, so... Reagan basically said that same thing to them. And more importantly, Reagan said, and you knew it when you formed the union. Uh, PATCO, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, I guess that stood for. He said, you know that this is essentially illegal. And you know that if you go on strike, it's a violation of the terms that you agreed to when you took the job. Yeah, but we feel like, run, 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 run. Okay. Anybody who doesn't show up to work on Monday's fired. Uh, Reagan will never fire thousands of air traffic controllers. The country will stop. But just shut down. There'd be no air traffic going. That's exactly what happened. 
We fired them and, and, and flights, hundreds and hundreds of flights were, were grounded for, it took about two, three years to recover. My friend Steve got called up from, um, from his job as an air traffic controller in the Air Force. Uh, you want to come work at Daytona Tower or whatever that was? Sure, no problem. And, um, and we managed to get through it. And parenthetically, as I point out in the Cold War, uh, once that happened, the Soviets realized, my God, what the hell do we do with this guy? He's, he's a person who says something and then he does it. Even if it's unpopular, he, he, he says he's going to do something and then he does that thing. That's why the um, that's why they they um, walked away from from Star Wars at uh, from SDI at Reykjavik because Reagan said we're going to do this, um, and they said well that means they'll do it. So anyway, so there's that. So Department of Education goodbye. Department of Energy. If anybody can tell me anything productive that the Department of Energy has done. I'm willing to listen to it, but honestly, all I see the Department of Energy doing is making sure that energy is as expensive as possible, again, like the Department of Education, in pursuit of political objectives. We've got uh, progressives who have this, the, the voting masses of, of them genuinely believe that we can win power our way to, uh, to a clean future before the earth dies. Um, And that's the official position of the United States government now. Goodbye. Department of Energy, goodbye. The states can deal with their own energy issues, or ideally the counties could deal with it, but I'm willing to let that live with the states. When, the, when there's a Department of Energy, energy gets more expensive and there's less of it, and you start having rolling blackouts like we have in California, and all the rest of that stuff, same exact argument for the Department of Education applies to the Department of Energy, you can scrap that too. Um, Department of, um, what is it now? Health and Human Services. A, a society, a civilized society should take care of people who can't take care of themselves. I'm not one of those people that think that people who are crippled or, or, or you know, mentally incapable should just go out there and you know, go die in the, in the, in the streets, you know, with knife fights, just below the bridges of New York City, you can all just sit there and kill each other. And somebody has to administer those benefits. But needless to say, we're probably talking about three or four percent of the population, not sixty or seventy percent of the population that's getting these benefits. So somebody has to administer whatever social services are necessary for people who genuinely need it. I'm talking about my ideal government and, and why I would make the cuts I would make. So I'd cut that thing way down, and I would, uh, and I would put in very stringent eligibility standards. You, if you're going to be on food stamps, you're going to have to prove that you really need them. Number one and number two, there is a ticking clock on this, and we'll reset the clock if we can show, if we can see compelling evidence that you've been doing your very, very best to look for a job. But short of that, no, we're not going to make a safety hammock for you, and it's not just for our benefit. It's not just for the people who are working extra hard to pay for you instead of getting a, a trip around the world or, or putting in a pool or something. No, I have to work extra hours to pay these taxes so I can so that you don't have to work at all. It's not just that. The, the real benefit, the real damage is we're not going to let you have this safety hammock for the rest of your life be, for your benefit because you become nothing but human potatoes that are filled with nothing but envy and rage and sit around and watch TV all day 
but play video games and have no control over your own life, have no desire to have any control over your own life, you're just, you're just might as well be in an iron lung. You're just on life support. And it's stealing all of the agency out of your free will. And that's why, that's why the progressives keep calling for things like a, a, a guaranteed living minimum wage. In other words, everybody in the country gets, well, let's just say for the sake of it, for fun, $40,000. That'll go up every year, whether you're working or not, because, we, because that's um, a human right, is you know, the right to housing and food and all the rest of these commodities. If you do that, and they're trying, then you, um, you will find very quickly that the people who are getting checks for $40,000 a year are wondering when they're not getting checks for $80,000 a year because it's not tied into reward because it's just plain a gift. And if it's a gift, then how come you're not giving us more? If you said, well, you're not getting more because you're, you're not working enough hours. If you work more hours, then we'll pay you more money. That makes sense. Nobody has a real problem with that. And in that situation, people who don't want to work real hard can take their minimum income and just sit in their apartment, play video games all they want to. If they want to work, you know, if they want to work at, at $9 an hour or 7 or whatever for the rest of their lives, it's their business. I'm not going to tell them what to do. They can be as, as, as inert or as active as they want to be. But so, so I would take whatever that government agency is and I would cut it real hard uh, and make means testing essential and just plain start getting people on their own feet. Um, uh, somebody mentioned the Department of Agriculture, Eric Blake. Now, the, I have to tell you that oftentimes I'll venture near the, 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 the boundaries of things I know something about, but I actually don't know anything about farming, the, the mechanics of it. I've never heard anything good from the about the Department of Agriculture, but I am willing to say that there might be something good about it that I'm unaware of because I'm not a farmer and I don't know how farming works. What I suspect is the case is that the Department of Agriculture is the mechanism through which subsidies and other non-market uh, constraints are implied or are enforced on the essentially on the, the food industry, the food growing industry. So, so when you hear the government paying people to not grow food, I'm thinking there's something wrong with this picture. There's something really wrong with this picture. People are being taxed to pay a farmer to not grow food. Now, I think... I agree with Jefferson on this as a general rule. I think that farmers are essentially, especially free farmers, American farmers, before this whole thing became one giant agro-industrial concern. I think that, that individual farmers are the are the essentially the, the 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 reservoir of moral virtue in this country because they're so close to reality, and and they work their their tails off. And uh, I just generally find them to be extraordinarily good people. Um, and so if a farmer who's in a rough, I'm talking about private farmers, if you've got a farmer who is in a rough trade that requires a lot of long hours, he's doing it because he loves it, or at least he respects it. And for him to not be growing things, 
I think is anathema to them. I'm not talking about things like field rotation or crop rotation or letting fields lie fallow. It's all part of managing a certain property. But when but when somebody comes in and say, you know, we'll give you you know, we'll give you thirty thousand dollars for soybeans, but we'll give you forty thousand dollars if you don't grow anything, then the farmers are doing whatever any other free, sensible individual would do. They're they're taking their best deal. I have a problem with the farmers taking the subsidies so much as I have a problem with the subsidies being offered in the first place. And um, and it's really difficult. I mentioned this a few times before. I've, I've had second thoughts about it many times. But I still think I did the right thing. There were three or four times during COVID when my bank contacted me and said, you can take out essentially a loan for as much as you want to. And it'll be non-interest, and if you can't pay it back, then it'll be forgiven. And I didn't take it because I just didn't feel like, because I didn't feel like my business was being impacted by COVID. I wasn't, if, if, if COVID had shut down the internet and, and I couldn't get any content out there, well, that'd be at least a different story, but I, 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 there are many, many, many times when I thought, man, I should have taken that. I really should have taken that money, you idiot. And then I just come back to, well, right or wrong, that's what felt right to me at the time, and uh, that's what feels right to me now. So, um, so there's that. Um, somebody mentioned Department of Homeland Security should be part of the Department of Defense. Not entirely sure about that. It's got a nice ring to it, um, but uh, but I think the Department of Defense should be about killing bad guys. And not policing. Uh, Cody Fed again with a super chat. Bit of hope before bed. By the way, I'm very hopeful. Talking about problems is not something like where I just like we're all doomed. I just want to know what the problems are so we can deal with them. Bit of hope before bed. Remember when the U.S. was infested with corruption and incompetence during both the Civil War and Revolutionary War? Yet here we still are. We're not doomed yet. No, we're not doomed yet. And and these things are cycles. There, <clears throat> uh, I got a chance to read a little bit more of the Fourth Turning. They talk about the. Average human lifespan has been 80 years, not average, let me rephrase that. Maximum human lifespan has been 80, 85 years for millennia. Much larger percentage of people are living to that upper li limit, but, but despite all the advances in medicine, the upper limit hasn't really changed much. You know, four score, it's 80 years. And uh, the entire premise of this book is, depending where you're born in uh, a cycle of, you know, they call it the great event, like World War II. These things come along, and whether you're born leading into that, after that, during that, will affect the way you see the world for the rest of your life and, and all of the rest of these things. Um, the book was written in the 19, end of the 1990s, so they're speculating about what great event was due somewhere around 2000. Just as a quick aside to this thing, I kind of look at it and I said, well, clearly it was 9-11, but 9-11 was kind of like a, a a firecracker that just kind of fizzled in terms of the magnitude of the impact. 9-11 was the defining crisis of my life, but 9-11 was not World War II. It felt like it for a while, but it's almost like 9-11 is like a coin that was flipped and landed on its edge. Was enough to it was enough to wake up some people and not enough to wake up others and 
So I don't know what's actually happening with that. But anyway, back to these various departments. Um, uh, I think if he's calling for the elimination or the reduction of these things, then he's on the right path. Now the question is, can he defend it? Because if you say, I'm going to cut the Department of Education, somebody said, well, you, the, the, the Democrats will say, see, see, they don't want an education for their kids. Are, are, is he capable of saying, I want to cut the Department of Education because I'd like to see our kids get an education again. Here's the graph. Any questions? Test scores, cost. Anybody got any questions with this? No? Okay. So we want to cut the Department of Education because it's time kids got an education again, and the Department of Education is there to prevent people from getting an education. In much the same way that NASA now is there to make sure that nobody flies in space, and the FAA is there to make sure that nobody enjoys flying at all. Um, I'm not going to go into every one of these departments, but I'll just use the FAA as an example. There needs to be something that looks like the FAA. Um, air travel is... Uh, is complex, expensive, and I would say orders of magnitude more costly in terms of failure. If you imagine the worst accident on the road that you can think of, I'm just going off the top of my head, but if you imagine like the worst accident on the highway, it would probably be a Greyhound bus smashing into another Greyhound bus, and that might result in 80 people being killed. When you have a 747 smashing into another 747 on the ground in Tenerife, 500 people are killed. And, and so, yes, there is a need for, for, for regulation. There's a need to protect the airspace around um, major airports like Los Angeles International or Orlando or, or Miami or any of these other ones. Um, O'Hare, JFK, all of that. Now, just because I'm going to go into the weeds a little bit on this one, um, it's important. Let's take LAX, for example, because I know this area really well, the airspace around here. Commercial jet travel in the United States, those, air, those airliners spend most of their time, most of their time, at their cruising altitude, which is usually around anywhere from 28,000 to 38,000 feet. But... They spend virtually all of their time when they're airborne, when the wheels are off the ground, virtually all of their time is above 12,000, 14,000 feet, somewhere around there. It's been so long. I was at flight level 180. is at 18,000 feet where, where it changes. I actually don't remember. But in any event, if I'm flying from, if I'm flying from Los Angeles to New York, I'm here, and then I get up very high, and then I stay very high, and then I come down again. And what happens between this, underneath this, should really be much more deregulated than it is. Because if you're talking about the worst case accident between general aviation, you're probably talking about something like a Cessna 172 running into another 172. You've eight, eight people, maybe nine, something like this. Ultimately, um, you're dealing with, with what, is, what are the consequences of catastrophe. Um, and when you're dealing with jetliners, it's huge. When you're dealing with puddle jumpers, it's not so big. And virtually everybody, in fact, I, I can say with some confidence, everybody who gets into a general aviation airplane is aware of the risk they're taking. If you take your 
if you take your um, your grandfather up for a flight in a, in a in a Cessna or a Piper, or or your mother for that matter, they're aware of the fact that you're not a professional pilot, and I don't think there are very many people who who think that their level of safety and the level of piloting and maintenance is going to be the same on a Skyhawk as it is on a on a you know, 787. So we need an FAA to protect commercial air travel and to make sure that those areas of airspace where the commercial jets take off and land are protected from idiots flying into those airspaces and colliding with jetliners. That's essentially what the FAA should be about in terms of the air. They should, they should set up reasonable standards for general aviation and stricter ones for commercial aviation, which I think they do relatively well. You have to have an annual inspection on an airplane in this country. Uh, and I don't know how often you have to inspect a jetliner, but I'm quite sure it's more than once a year. Likewise, uh, uh, a general aviation license is, is good for um, two years. Your medical is usually good for two years. Um, and commercial pilots have to recertify every six months. This all makes sense to me. But, but the fact of the matter is huge, huge areas of this country are open skies that are regulated to the point where you can't have fun anymore. You just can't. Those days of getting up in an airplane and just kind of chasing the clouds, those days are over. And, and that's just plain overreach because the consequences of failure there are minimal, minimal, probably just going to be you. Um, and the attitude of the FAA, I was at Oshkosh with Bert Rutan in 2015, I want to say. And, I, and, and just before Bert went on, there was a couple of FAA guys talking about this and that. And, of course, people are, you know, having issues with them. And, and one of the FAA guys said, look, we allowed you to do this. We allowed you to do, you know, this, whatever this particular regulation was. And I actually said, sir, you know, I don't think you really understand the system. You're not here to allow us to do things. We don't need your permission to do things. This is a free country. We're responsible people. We all agree that there are reasonable restraints that can be justified in terms of safety that have nothing to do with what you're talking about out here. And I don't need your permission. At least I shouldn't need your permission. Go fly my airplane. Um, who do you think you are? That got a round of applause. And the guys basically just said, well, our job is to keep people safe. It's not. Part of your job is to keep people safe, and that part of the job you do relatively well. And I think all of us would agree on this. But now we're talking about people who don't fly or, 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 or who are sitting in a desk someplace deciding that they're going to restrict or, or eliminate free people doing what they want to do and going where they want to go for no justifiable reason. And that's what most of the airspace in this country is in terms of area. It's unjustifiably controlled. And um, and so, yes, do we need an FAA? Yes, we need a much smaller FAA. Um, and they need to inspect commercial airliners and they need to do minimum inspections, affordable, reasonable inspections on general aviation aircraft, which is pretty close to what they got now. And they need to, we did a, a right angle on this just a couple weeks ago called fighter, no, called, um, 
uh, Crazy About Flying, where I where I mentioned. Um, so in in as a general aviation pilot, I, I I when I when I got my general aviation license, when I when I passed a check ride, and also when I passed a check ride for the instrument rating, both those. Both of the examiners said, you really should take your commercial license right now. You're, you're red hot. You just sail through it. And I didn't. So I'm a general aviation private pilot. But I can fly to commercials. Not to, not to airline standards. I can fly to commercial pilot standards. And so every two years, you have to have a biannual flight review, which means that you have to go up with an instructor who's going to make you do the... going to ask you some questions on the ground so you remember whether or not... You know, which side is up, the blue side up, brown side down, those kind of questions. And then they will go up every two years and, and make sure that you still know how to fly an airplane. They'll give you maneuvers, turns around a point. Okay, I want you to, you know, I want you to do a, a straight ahead stall. I want you to do a 360 degree turn at a 45 degree bank angle and roll out within five degrees or two, all that stuff. Yes, that's, that's not unreasonable. And you also have a medical exam, and the bottom medical is good for two years as well. So great, every two years I got to go in and prove that I that I'm capable of doing this, and I think that's reasonable. I have no problem with that. However, when you go for your FAA medical, you are given a form, and and you are asked, "Do you have any of these conditions?" Tick, 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 tick. Well, I didn't check any of them because I didn't have any of them. And then, in 2008, I think, I got hit with a kidney stone, which really hurt. And being the sweet summer child that I was, when I got time for the next FAA medical, when I got down to the list, it's like kidney stones, I went tick, and everything else was blank, handed it in, he did the, did the heart, the rate, all, all of that stuff. And he, I handed it to him, and he said, well, I can't renew your medical. I said, why? He said, because you've got a history of kidney stones. I said, I had one kidney stone once in 48 years of life, and that's over and gone. I don't have kidney pain. He says, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Okay, so what do I have to do? He said, well, the FAA will notify you. And they did, four months later. Three and a half or four months later, got a letter from the FAA, and I was flying pretty much every week, if not several times a week. So I'm sitting on the ground for three months, three and a half months, and the FAA says, we have reviewed your medical, blah, 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 and in order to regain your uh, flying status, you will have to um, prove to us that you no longer have kidney stones. And then there was a response to that, too, and that took some time. So what I had to do was I had to go into a doctor's office, and I had to have an ultrasound of my kidneys, then I had to take that ultrasound results, including the images, and mail them back to the FAA in order to get my medical back. And that took another three months. And it might have taken another six months. I know I mentioned this on the right angle. If you didn't see it, you're going to hear it now. It might take another six months. It might have taken another year. I don't know. Because for the first and far as I know, only time in my life ever, I actually pulled a string on that one. And I felt awful about it. But I'd been sitting on the ground for five months for a condition I didn't have. And after I had submitted the proof that they needed and two more months had gone by, I called a guy who I'd done a, a number of fundraising events for. He's, it's, a, it's a pilot foundation kind of thing. It does an awful lot of work with wounded vets and all the rest of its stuff. And, and he's got some high-level connections. And I just called him up and I said, I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but the organization or his name. But I basically said, hey, pal, 
uh, I've been sitting here on the ground for five, six months. Do you know of anybody who can check the status on this? That's all I would like to know is how long. And four days later, I got my, I got my uh, clearance. And I felt really bad about it because the, I know that there's another army of pilots sitting behind me who don't have somebody like that that they can call. So there's your criteria, you know. The government does, there needs to be a government, but we don't have a government anymore, we have a state. We have people who are in that state and they are drunk on power and they're drunk on telling people what to do and how to do it and it's time for those people to find uh, other employment and that's going to require votes. Um, I should mention, by the way, however, I should mention this just to be fair. So this is right when when Bush was in a lot of George Bush and the Iraq war and stuff, and I was really defending, I was out there swinging for George Bush against all the unfair attacks against him, and some of them were fair and rich or whatever. I was just that, right? And I took a flight from um, Van Nuys Airport to Mojave. I had friends up in Mojave Airport. Um, hey, there's a super chat. I get to that one second. Thank you very much. Uh, and you are advised to get a flight briefing. There is a flight service number that you call, and they're, they, at least when I was flying, they were very efficient. It's not like you had to wait for hours. You just got on the phone, talked to a briefer. On a cross-country flight, uh, you don't have to do that for a local flight. Generally a good idea, and I usually did, but it was a, I don't know, 20-mile cross-country flight, something like that. Um, uh, I um, talked to a friend at Mojave at the airport, I said, how things look up there? He said, severe clear. It's Mojave Desert. That's why we do flight tests out here. Winds are calm. Ceiling and, invis and, and, and visibility unlimited. So I said, swell. So I got in my airplane, talked to Van Nuys Ground, taxied out to the runway, talked to Tower, got a departure, did a, did a downwind departure, left the airspace, and everything's great. I'm up there at Mojave for several hours or something like this, and then I'm coming back from um, Mojave back to Van Nuys. It might have been Santa Monica at the time. Yeah, I, I think it was. I was based in Santa Monica at the time. I'm flying, so I have to fly right through Van Nuys' airspace. Piece of cake. You, you, you call them up and say, hey, you know, here's my position. I'm going to Santa Monica. Request a class Delta transition. Approved. Nothing to it. So as I'm getting ready to enter Van Nuys' airspace, I'm, I'm trying to call in, but the, the frequency is just crazy. It's just, it, people just constantly, constantly calling in. And I don't have a high-priority request, you know. Um, I was above their airspace because I just realized, you know, I'll, I'll just stay out of their airspace above it until I can get somebody to clear me through it. So I'm zooming along, and... And I call for clearance, and uh, and then I get a, a there's a moment. He says, "Hold on a second. And I said, "Oh, that's not good." And then they said, "Okay, you're going to need to divert to um, where the hell did they send me? I can't remember the name of the place. It's I don't know, 15 miles inland, El Monte, maybe something like that." Okay, can you tell me why? He said, "Yes, you've um, you violated a, a presidential." Um, uh, temporary flight restriction zone. 
turns out George Bush was visiting L.A., and there is a 30-mile exclusion zone, and I flew about less than half a mile into that 30-mile exclusion zone, and I did that while I was waiting to talk to somebody on the frequency. But I was inside the zone, and I broke the law. So I said, go over to this other airport, and I land. By now it's full-on dark, and I taxi to where they tell me to taxi, and all of a sudden five or six police cars are there with their lights on, you know. Nobody drew a gun on me or anything, but they said, could you get out of the aircraft? I said, certainly. Now, I had the time from when I, when I made that error to when I got to the airport was about a 25-minute flight, and I got that much time to start uh, whipping myself over this thing. So by the time I got there, it wasn't like I was compliant. It was like I, I, was, I was guilty. That was clear to me, you know. It was a lot of people. So let me just finish the story as it, as it happened. So I get I get pulled into this office at the airport, and I sit down with a with a um, with a guy from uh, Department of Homeland Security who starts asking me questions if I have any issues with the president and do I ever plan to mean him harm or anything like that. I said actually I publicly defended him. I support him strongly. I certainly voted for him, and and I, you know I'm kind of a fan. Uh, and uh, that questioning lasted for about 45 minutes. And um, and it was clear to him from the beginning, from the beginning, that I wasn't a problem because I was so damn angry at myself and upset about it that there's nothing he could have said or done that would have um, mitigated that. So I was looking at a six-month suspension uh, for my license and... Um, and I remember thinking, it would have been nice when I flew through their airspace on the way out if they had mentioned that there was a TFR coming, a temporary uh, flight restriction. But they didn't. But that's not the point. The point is, I didn't call for the briefing. If I had called for the briefing, I would have known about the TFR, and I wouldn't have made the flight. So, a couple weeks go by, and it's my turn to go to the FAA office and talk to the, to the FAA guys who are going to decide what they're going to do with me. And... Um, and so I went. A number of, of publications have, have said, you should always take an attorney with you when you go to talk to the FAA. And I just immediately said, no, that's not going to happen here. Um, and the reason it's not going to happen here is because I'm guilty. If I wasn't guilty, I would have looked at it very differently. But the fact of the matter is, I was inside that 30-mile limit without having made radio contact, even though I was trying. Trying doesn't count. If I hadn't gotten the clearance, if I'd known about the TFR, I would have just orbited outside until I got the clearance, but I didn't, so I didn't, so it's my fault. So I go talk to these two guys behind this desk, and I come in, and I sit down, and I say, gentlemen, before we start this procedure, I would just like to say uh, this. Uh, I am 100% guilty of this violation. Uh, I don't think there's anything you can do to make me feel worse about it than I already do. But I just thought we'd start this conversation by letting you know you're not going to be hearing any excuses from me or any uh, justification or any denial about it. So we can just skip that right now. And these, you could see these guys were like just a little bit like gobsmacked by this. You know? Okay, really? Well, okay, well, and okay, so, uh, well, we've looked at your situation. Um, is there anything you want to say? And I said, well, sir, yes. 
just in terms of, of explaining to you my, my thinking on this, I didn't get the briefing like I should have because I talked to a fellow pilot at the airport who was a friend of mine, and because I'd heard from him that the conditions were good, I decided to forego the, the, the briefing. But it's not like I didn't know. It's not like I didn't check, and it's not like I didn't care. I just didn't do it through the appropriate flight service station. They said, we, we think that's significant, you know, and so we're not going to charge you with, uh, you know, reckless or whatever and so on. So to make a long story short, I don't know what the, the, the thing was. It was a two-month suspension or one-month suspension, something like that. And as I'm leaving, the, the, I swear to God this is true, as I'm leaving the FAA office, one of these guys said, um, you know, you're very uh, articulate about these things and, and, um, and you clearly have your... Uh, priority straight, and you certainly understand the airspace system. And we're kind of wondering if you'd be interested in kind of doing a series of talks about this. I said, for the FAA? He said, yeah. Sure. So instead of getting the book thrown at me, they offered me, <laughs> they offered me a job, uh, which I didn't take. Uh, but that's an example of where the, of that government agency did did exactly it's it did exactly its right way they they handled it perfectly they had a right to be questioning me uh, I was in the wrong and from the I don't know how much of this they actually came out and said they mentioned something but basically what I realized was these guys get lied to that's their that's their job have pilots come in and lie to them you know. I wasn't there. We got you on radar. No, 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 no. Let's look at a GPS track. And you can't prove it. Just, just constantly arguing with them. Constantly, constantly, constantly trying to get out of the responsibility of it. I just said, well, no, I'm, of course I'm, I'm, I did it. I'm sorry I did it. I won't, I won't do it again. But yes, that's, that's what happened. And I think this just completely gobsmacked them. I really think that they'd said that this this kind of thing had happened. So I don't want to be unfair about about government workers or about government agencies. You know, it's I I I I despise some of these things on a theoretical basis. The fact of the matter is, there's a lot of people, not all of them, but a lot of people who work for the government who are really good people, who are patriotic people, and who are doing their very best to do their job. And I can disagree with the mandate of the organization, but most of the people I deal with are extremely professional. Along those lines, somebody said we're never going to get to questions. Probably right. Uh, I'm wrapped with this, so I'll uh, I'll go to questions next. But um, along the same lines, in 1993, I was living in California, 92, and I'd started going to the gym. I'd seen the Batman movie with Michael Keaton, and I thought I'm as smart as Batman, but I'm just a 98 pound weakling. I'm going to buff up, and that way I'll be able to beat up guys and Get me my Batmobile. So I started going to the gym every day, and, and I'd been crazy thin, and I just started working really hard. So I went to the gym every day for a couple of years when I was driving a limousine. And one day I was in the gym, and I was working on the – I'd been doing the universal machines, and I, I probably wasn't doing it very smart. I was just really pushing hard. So I get to the point where if I can do three sets of ten on this machine consistently three times in a row, then I'm raising the weight. And that was my metric. So I actually got fairly strong on the universal machine. And I had a friend of mine say, you really should use free weights. 
uh, Bill, because it's much better for you, said, I don't, you know, Don, I don't really want to do that. You know, it's kind of a pain. In the, it's, and serious guys are using the free weights. I mean, the universal, just stick the pin in the thing, you know, just, yeah, but you should try. All right. So he got me to go with him to the gym, and he was going to spot me on this thing. Now, because I'd been working on the universal machine, I'd actually gotten relatively smart. Uh, strong, rather. Not so smart. Strong. Because those two bars are welded together, right? So you're pushing with both arms to lift an aggregate weight. And when I got on the, on the free weights, I had the same weight on there that I'd already been able to do relatively comfortably before. But this time, the arms are taking different loads. Instead of the arms taking the same load because of that big old welded steel bar. So, and on one of them like this, I'm trying to, trying to push this thing up. And I realized that one of my arms was weaker than the other one. It was my left arm. And, and I'm like this. And all of a sudden, it just, just collapsed. And he didn't spot it in time. So this whole thing collapsed. All the weights on that side go sliding off. This thing now is so super heavy. It comes off to the other side. Nobody's hurt or anything. I'm a little embarrassed. And then the next day I wake up and I can't turn my head at all. I cannot move my head at all. I can't. This was out of the question. Just this unbelievable pain in my neck. So I was in L.A. and I went to chiropractors and I went to, you know, just a lot of things. Somewhere around this time, I moved back to Florida. I was writing comedy for Kaiser Permanente. I was writing jokes for them. And I went back to Florida to do um, the sketch comedy show back to Gainesville, my second trip back. And this neck problem is getting worse and worse and worse. And I remember I visited my mom, went to a movie theater, and we were talking about something. And, and I had to, when I was talking to her, I'd have to turn at the waist, you know, like this, just to, just to, just to look at her. It really, 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 really hurt. And it was getting worse and worse. So... I went to the to the doctor and they said, you're going to need, um, this disc is going to have to come out. You've got a, you've got a ruptured disc between C, C5 and C6 and you've got a herniated disc next to it. You are never going to be able to, you're, you're going to need surgery. And, and I didn't have any money at all, none, zero. So well, this is going to be a problem, doc. You know? uh, he says, well, have you tried vocational rehab? I said, no. I said, it's a state program. Uh, maybe you should go and see. So I went into voc rehab in Florida, kind of like a guy who was, you know, 80th in line trying to get an autograph from William Shatner or something. And I went into this office, and as it turns out, I was the first case that this new person had. They still had a supervisor. It was a new trainee but I was the first person that this woman had ever dealt with as her own. I was her own. I was her first actual case that belonged to her. And I went in there and said, so look, I, I injured my neck here and stuff. Uh, it, it's not like I injured it on the job. I don't, I, I'm not trying to make a claim or anything. It's not like I would, you know, got, got hit by a forklift at you know, Walmart or something. I just... I'm just in, a, in an awful lot of pain, and, and, I'm, and I can't turn my head, and the doctor recommended I come and talk to you. They asked me a few questions about it and stuff, and then they said, um, okay, we'll cover it. And I was amazed, and I was also feeling a little bad about it, because like, oh, so you can just take this government handout here. And I, and I said that to them. I said, look, i got to tell you, 
I'm very grateful, extremely grateful, but I have some real, some real ethical issues with this, you know. Um, and this is what they said to me. This is when the supervisor spoke up. The supervisor said, all right, Bill, here's, here's, what, here's the position of the state of Florida, because I was living there and expected I'd be living there for quite a long time. He said, here's the position of the state of Florida, Bill. We can pay for this operation, which is eight grand or whatever it was back then. And you will be returned to pretty much full functionality. You'll get a job and you'll continue to pay taxes in Florida for the rest of your life. So we can spend that eight grand and turn you into a productive tax-paying citizen, or we can deny it, in which case you're going to be on government subsidies and supplements for the rest of your life because you can't work a whole lot of jobs if you can't turn your head from side to side. And that actually made sense to me. Um, and so I took it. And, uh, and while I ended up paying most of those taxes to the state of California instead of the state of Florida. Nevertheless, the argument um, was sound, and, 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 I, and I thought it was compelling enough for me to be able to accept the, 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 the handout, you know, the free money. Um, so, again, I would have preferred that the money went to Florida, but needless to say, the amount of money that, that I paid in taxes to a state is... Many, 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 many times what they what they paid for me. And as an interesting kind of an aside, uh, the doctor who said I needed the operation uh, was at Shan's uh, Teaching Hospital, University of Florida, which is one of the best medical facilities in the world. And uh, and I said, well, well, you know, this is before I got the approval from Voc Rehab. I said, well, assuming I can get this what does this consist of? And he said, um, we're going um, to make a, a, I can't actually remember which side it is now, I can't even see it. It's here. He said, make an incision on your neck about that big. And don't worry, I'll put it on a natural crease, you know. You're already old enough that you got a couple little wrinkles in your neck. I'm going to make that incision right on that crease so you'll barely see it. Okay, and it's going to be about about that big. And I thought, my God, you know, my dad had, had kidney surgery, where he where the the stitches would start just around his navel and go practically to his spine. It's like somebody swung a gigantic axe in the side of him. I mean, they just took this huge incisions. He had three of them for, for three different occasions, and, and stitches like he looked like a football laces. You know, just horrific. And he's like, no, no, we're just making a little incision here and stuff. And then we're gonna we're gonna go in. We got these little uh, you know remote control things. We're gonna go in and we're gonna we're gonna drill that bad disc out. We're gonna just drill it into pieces, suction it out, and then we're gonna pack it with stuff. And then the two bones will fuse, and then you won't have the pressure on the nerves because that that disc will be gone. And <laughs> Eric Blake says almost like you were hit in the face with a great big mace. Yeah, well, that's where I got it from. Um, I said, that's fantastic. I, I have two questions for you. First of all, aren't there a bunch of tubes and things in the front of your neck and the vertebrae on the back? Is that something that we, you know, that's considered? I mean, we're because we're, I'm fairly sure that there's a number of relatively important tubes and pipes and, you know, 
arteries, veins, and trachea, and all the rest. We said, we just push them out of the way. It's a swell. Second question was, what are you going to use to put in there to pack these two vertebrae together so they fuse? I said, you sure you want to know about this? I said, well, <laughs> now I do. I, I thought you were going to tell me, you know, Bondo or something. I said, no, um, we're going to use a powder. It's called a cadaver bone matrix. Okay. A cadaver bone matrix. Yeah, that's what we call it. So you're telling me you're going to take somebody else's skeleton that's been hopefully washed <laughs> and you're going to grind, and that exists in a powder form, and you're just going to pack it in there because that's what, it's actual human bone. That's what we're going to do. So there's actually two of us walking around now. And remember, don't think about it too often, but really, uh, me and some cadaver, that's why I like to say we all the time. We are not amused, meaning me and the guy, whoever, guy or girl, who um, provided that little bit of a, of a cadaver bone matrix. Um, I went to the, the hospital. I had a couple friends there, but not a lot of support. You know, I walked to the hospital, actually, and uh, went in, and I wasn't terribly nervous. And I sat on this gurney, and they put a little loop into my wrist here, you know, and I got my little gown, I got my little, you know, wristband on here so that if I wander off into the woods, you know, they'll be able to track me and find out, you know, find out my name and who my owners are and all the rest of that stuff. And uh, and they said, okay, we're about ready to go here. You can just lie down on this gurney here. And I'm thinking, okay, because uh, you're going to go out. And, and thank you very much for these... Uh, Gojira for these uh, super chats. And I said, so now what happens? I'm lying flat on my back. There's an anesthesiologist, young guy, came over. And you can call me Bones now. And you can call me just corpse pace if you want. Um, and the guy said, well, now I'm going to give you some really, really amazing drugs. I said, okay. And he takes the little catheter. He's got his little hypodermic and injects this thing into the catheter which is going into my into my arm and he says uh, okay I want you to count back backwards from a hundred how far do you want me to go he says start counting okay 100 99 98 I said the, the, the roof is spinning and I think that's about as far as I got um, so uh, next thing I remember I was really, no, that was something different. Next thing I remember, I hear voices. I don't see anything. I just hear voices. And, um, and, uh, and I'm obviously moving my head or something, and, and I can hear a nurse saying, Hi, uh, Bill. Hi. Okay. Every, look, everything's fine. Don't worry. It's going to take a little while for your vision to come back. But, you know, you're doing just great. I said, when are they going to start? And they said, for the 15th time now, Bill, it's already over. It's done. I must have asked him this again and again and again. So <laughs> I remember this so clearly. I still I still couldn't see anything. And I'm lying there on this gurney coming out of this anesthesia. And I remember saying to the nurse, I'm twitching my fingers and my toes. Are they moving? And she said, yes. I said, that's a good sign. Because I was fairly acutely aware of the fact that we're operating on my spinal cord or near it. Um, so, uh, so. I came to, and here's the, here's a little punchline. So 
I spend one night in the hospital. I'm ravenous because I haven't eaten anything prior to that because of the anesthesia. I'm in this semi-private room. And the nurse comes in, and a guy next to me just got his dinner. It was a pork chop and other stuff. And, uh, and I'm sitting, sitting up like this, and, and I remember my head felt a little weird. I thought, don't lean over too far because you don't want your head to fall off just yet, you know? Just let this thing heal a little bit. And uh, so the nurse comes in. She goes, how you doing? I said, I'm doing pretty good. She said, would you like, like, a, like a moist sponge or something to suck on or something, you know? Is your mouth dry? I said, what I really, really like is one of those pork chop things over there. Well, okay. So I just wolfed that baby down. It's got another one. Yes, we do. Shot that thing out. So the next day, I'm wearing a, a foam. Was I? No, maybe I wasn't after. No, I don't think I was after the operation. So the next day, I'm with uh, a couple of my friends. We're at Sonny's Barbecue on Archer Road in Gainesville, Florida. And I am ordered my uh, barbecue chicken and my big old french fries and my sweet tea, which is about that big, and had so much sugar in it that if you sprinkled a couple grains on top of it, the whole thing would just freeze into like rock candy. And I go up to pay, and as I'm walking towards the cash register, I look in one of the booths here, and sitting there is the surgeon who operated on me and his son. And um, I said, Dr. He said, Bill, how are you? I'm well. How, how are you doing? You're looking pretty good. I said, I feel great. feel really great. Thanks. Excellent work. Looking forward to seeing you on the checkup thing. So I go pay my bill and I walk out. And then <laughs> I go for my after, after a surgery visit with the guy. And he said, I was sitting there with my son. And you walked up and you said hi. And then, then you went to pay your bill. And my son said, who was that? And and, and doctor says, well, that's the guy whose vertebrae I just removed 22 hours ago. And um, ever since then, I've been great. Uh, but the point of all that story was that the, the, that Vogue rehab person also said the same thing that essentially the FAA said. That that young woman, when she approved that uh, procedure, and I was so grateful, I was so grateful, she said, uh, you're, you're, I've been training for a year or whatever. I think you're the second person, and I've seen, we see seven, eight people a, a day. I think you might be the second one who wasn't mean, and you were certainly the first one who was grateful. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, no. She said, we get nothing but people coming in here demanding things, demanding it. It's my right. It's this. You owe me. You owe me. You owe me. You're the only person I ever dealt with came in here and asked if we could do this. Everybody else has told us that we had to. I said, oh, no. Isn't that interesting? Funny how that works, isn't it? Right, let's do some questions here. Uh, before I launch into another tirade. So it just needs to be said that while I'm in favor of eliminating a lot of these government agencies, many of the people are terrific. Um, when Natasha and I went to, who's watching now? Hello, baby. I'll see you soon. Uh, when we went for our first interview with um, immigration, naturalization. We'd been, it had been six months since we'd, have, I forget how that works. Yeah, she had to be in the country for six months, and then we went in to apply for a green card for her. And, and we'd gotten married by that time, 
we went into this guy's office and we brought in all the photographs. We had to prove that we were, you know, actually living together and we brought in photographs and, you know, and tons of photographs and, you know, things from places we'd been in Vegas and all kinds of things. We had to prove to these people that it wasn't just a sham marriage and so on. And I was so nervous. And when we went through this interview, he looked at all this stuff and he, and he, and he looked and he said, I've decided to approve your, uh, your application for the green card. And I remember thinking, you, you decided? What if you'd had a bad night, man? You know, that's the end of my life. What if you'd had a bad day? You decided, I'd much rather have had you. I didn't say this, obviously. I just, just kept my fingers crossed. I thank you very much, and we got the hell out of there. But afterwards, I was thinking, I've decided to approve this. You couldn't say, well, you've met the requirements of the, of the immigration and naturalization. So, no, he, that's not what he says. I've decided to approve it. I thought, well, lucky us. Somewhere between those two positions, there is... Uh, some truth to be found. All right, let's see what we got here. Ah, no one even remembers. I'll have to log in. God, these people. It still hurt a little bit. Stratosphere uh, Lounge, questions, and more. There right, we go. Baby's loading up. Nine posts. Seems unlikely. Never know. Um, just doing a quick scan. So here's what we'll do. Um, we'll do, there's a couple of duplicates. We'll do one, uh, I think I can get to one of everybody. Uh, so let's just start here with somebody we don't see quite so much. Um, Trevor Duell, not that we don't love it when you when we do see it, Trevor. Hi, Bill. Uh, did you ever talk about Senator Tuberville blocking flag officer promotions in the military due to the DOD's policy on abortion? They will pay for your travel to get one. One of the advantages to being a junior grade NCO non-commissioned officer, for those of you who may not know what that means, is that my promotion doesn't require congressional approval, so it's no skid off my nose that those promotions are being held up. It also doesn't hurt my feeling too much, especially after the Afghan withdrawal disaster. It's clear that top brass won't be held accountable. Also, what do you think of in their own words as your interview show title? It's, an, it's a great title. Um, I'm kind of leaning towards finding a way to make archetypes work. Archetypes work. I did not hear about uh, uh, Senator blocking these flag officer promotions, but I'm at the point now where anytime somebody says we're blocking the promotion of a flag officer, it's not true 100% of the time, but I'd be willing to bet you that 7 out of 10 times, it's probably a good thing. Um, the destruction of our military is, is coming from the top down. And when I see generals like General Tilly or Tully or whatever the hell his name is, I just don't know how he can wear the uniform. I really just don't know how. Uh, 
for, for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to say that the greatest threat facing our nation is climate change and that our biggest challenge is inclusive, inclusivity, not preparedness, not readiness, not, not capability, not training, nothing. It's inclusivity. That's our biggest challenge. I just look at this and I just say, all right, here's, you know, the, the, the biggest insult I can level at this general is you, sir, are a peacetime general. You're a political general. That's what you are. I don't think you frankly deserve to be wearing the same uniform as everybody else. You should be wearing some kind of administrative uniform. Um, but, uh, So I don't really have much to say about it because I haven't really uh, heard about it, but um, this is the kind of thing you need to do. You need to keep holding people, uh, uh, their, their feet to the fire. Uh, Lady Hawk uh, says that uh, Senator Tuberville said that there are too many four stars already. Yes, no doubt they are. One of the, one of the things that's true for our military, it's usually less so than other militaries, but certainly we're on our way to catch up. We are way, 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 way too top-heavy in this in this uh, military. Way too top-heavy, um, and um, and so these officers will not retire, which means that their positions and their salaries or whatever are more important to them than whatever sense of duty they might have. Sometimes your duty to your country is just to get out of the way. You know, there's a lot of many, 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 many officers served a, a career with distinction and um, and it's time for them to go and they won't go. And the ones that don't go are the ones that are obsessed with things like promotions and and um, and and power. The Pentagon is a is a priesthood. It's a it's a monastery where the only people that are actual war fighters in the Pentagon, the generalization obviously, but it's largely true, are the people who are coming in and out of the Pentagon to testify or, 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 or give a briefing before they go back to their real job. The people that live in that building are not, they may be soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, and what are they, spacemen? Uh, but they're not warriors, and it was a big and nasty wake-up call for me to realize that high-ranking officials in the United States military would put money and their personal careers and their personal income over the lives of our soldiers. I was so naive that I finally, I just could not believe that somebody would be in that situation. But you look at the Bradley fighting vehicle and all the rest of it, and that's you just realize, I don't know who these people are, but they're not they're not warriors, and they should not have to wear, their, should not wear the same uniform as them. Steve Whip is still pissed about Ford Hood. I am too. This business about renaming these these forts is revolting. I find it interesting that nobody who lived during the time of uh, John Bell Hood felt that it was necessary to change the name of Fort Hood when it was named, or any of these other uh, uh, forts and and um, camps and stuff that are being renamed. Um, and, of course, they picked something completely, what was it, is it Fort Liberty now or some some milk toast kind of, you know, junior high school, audiovisual department kind of, you know, name? No, it's Fort Frickin' Hood, and it's, and, and, and 
um, and it's Fort Bragg, and it's Fort all of these things, and this is what they are, this tradition. Tradition matters. It really matters, uh, and it matters in the military more than anybody else. Um, yet, David Booty says, I'm pissed that Ndal Hassan is still alive. He's the guy who shot up Fort Hood. I'm surprised they didn't name it Fort Hassan, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, Fort Liberty's former Fort Bragg. So what's Fort, what's Fort um, Hood now? Is it Fort Freedom or Fort Inclusion or is it Fort Diversity? Was going to be something like this. Um, and by the way, just since this flew into my head, uh, you can, it's Fort Cabezos or something? Okay. I don't know who it's, you know, um, Correct. Sorry. Sometimes I have uh, a little amber light goes off in my head saying, you, you, you want to make sure you get this correct. Yes, I did get it right. I wanted to make double sure in this particular case. If you're going to change the name from Fort Hood or Fort Bragg or whatever, it should become Camp Murphy or Camp Bassalone or something like that. If you're going to take away the name of Fort Hood, and you're not, you don't replace it with some beige, bloodless, lifeless advertising term. You know, find find a... Oh, it was the first Mexican general? Well, that's just swell. I'll tell you what. I have no problem whatsoever. If you mean first Mexican general, Steve Whoop says, I'm assuming you're first Mexican-American general. Why don't, we, why don't we just compromise here? Why don't you name it after the first Mexican-American winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumous? I could I'd be fine with that name. I'd be fine with that. Um, but... And the people who went there know it's Fort Hood and Fort Bragg and all the rest of it, and, and it always will be. So, um, you know, fine. It'll be Fort Sojourner Truth soon, or, or, um, or Fort, you know, Susan B. Anthony. And, and I know that they can't be this stupid, but... On the other hand, they can be pretty stupid. They, there is, it's entirely possible they don't realize fully how important these things are. Uh, mostly, I'm inclined to think they completely understand how important these things are, and that's why they're doing it. Moving on, uh, Eric Blake, uh, the man in the hat is back. Hail Vectrump. Clever. So Tucker's been thinking about how Democrats have been steadily one-upping their efforts to take out Trump, almost as if they don't want to run against him, huh, Ben and Clavin? Tucker feels if and when they fail with these lawsuits, the next step beyond is attempted assassinations. So what do you think? Are they smart enough to realize how much that had backfired, successful or not? Either way, I trust by Vec Trump's golden hairdo, his Secret Service is anticipating this. Um, I heard that too. The sweet summer uh, child part of me says that that no matter how much they may wish his demise, 
that is a line that, that, that simply can't be crossed. But then again, I have been heartbroken more times than I can count since 2020 at the state of, um, of at things that I had previously believed were utterly, completely impossible. Utterly impossible. Um, so, I think it's possible, and I'll tell you why. They know that we know that Epstein didn't kill himself. They, they know that we know that he was murdered in prison. And all we did was howl about it. We didn't do anything. They know that we know that the lockdowns that they put on us in terms of COVID-19 had no basis in scientific reality. And even if they did, they had no basis uh, in terms of, of uh, trumping our civil rights, if you'll pardon the expression, but they did that anyway. And what we've basically done is we've convinced them that no matter what they do, we'll get angry and we'll write, you know, firewalls and afterburners and send outraged emails about it. And we'll, and we'll talk about the second amendment. We'll do all those other things, but we won't actually do anything about it. Um, one of the many things that I used to think were just plain, just, no, just, it's just, it just, the world doesn't work that way. Was when people were start telling me about the the list of Arkansas that had followed uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton around, you know, all of these people that have been just suddenly c killing themselves after dealing with um, the Clintons and some some odd thing, and I just thought, come on, this is a, put enough dots on the table, you can draw any picture you want to. Um, but now I I realize, no, probably not. I, the, look, Epstein was a real uh, milestone for me because. There's no, they didn't even go to the trouble of plausible deniability. They went with implausible deniability. Uh, yeah, the video cameras went out for 13 minutes. Really, during the 13 minutes that he was being murdered, the video camera burned out? Yep. Show me the burnout camera. It's working again. Well, isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Um, Lady Hawk says Monica survived. Yeah, well, I think Monica had done as much damage as she could. I don't think there's any more damage that she could do. Um, and uh, And Monica had the... And plus, it was a different time, you know. That was that was twenty, twenty-five years ago. So, I, I, you know, whether they would try it or not is just pure speculation. I'm not going to get into that because I just, I just don't. It's just a repulsive idea to think about anyway. But if it did happen, If that doesn't do it, nothing will. So that's all I can say. I mean, there's always the question of, and this is why I think, this is why I think that they got away with what they got away with, with Epstein and with uh, COVID and all the rest of it. I'm utterly convinced that, that, that using big tech and the government together, they're, they're the same thing now that they are constantly measuring the temperature of the country in terms of what people are saying in emails, what kind of posts they're making, what kind of comments they're making. They're measuring the temperature of the electorate, of the conservative electorate, and they are constantly finding a way 
to continue to raise the level of outrage because that is boiling the frog slowly, but they're also making sure that they don't do it so suddenly that the frog jumps out of the, out of the pot. And, um, and so, I'm concerned that we have taught them that, we'll, that they can basically do pretty much anything they want to, and we'll huff and we'll puff and we'll, you know, blow our own house down. Um, at this point, it's just pure speculation, and, and I don't really know if there's any point in me really answering this question, to be honest with you, Eric. Uh, other than to say that if, if that were to happen to Donald Trump with the same degree of um, obviousness as Epstein, in other words, if, there's, if their cover was as weak as the cover they had for Epstein, then I am going to radically rethink um, where, uh, where this country is in its history and, and, and what, you know, what our place is in it and, and what, um, what the remedies would be. So I don't think it will happen for that reason. Um, but one thing I am sure of is they are terrified of this guy, and that is enough reason for me to vote for him, to crawl over broken glass to vote for him. It's much about the man that I don't like, and much about him I find genuinely um, embarrassing. But... the people that are trying to take away our country are terrified of him. And that's good enough for me. And when you look at his, if you take Donald Trump out of the Donald Trump presidency and just look at the presidency on a piece of paper, it's one of the most successful presidencies in American history. You'd probably make the case it was the single most successful one-term presidency in American history. I thought about this this morning when I was, um, when I was getting ready to come in. But, you know, so it was... Progressives and Democrats are aware that their cities are falling apart. They're aware their states are falling apart. And they're aware that their economies are falling apart. And I'm not talking about the multimillionaires in their limousines, but I really think that if I was a Republican, I would basically, my, my entire campaign strategy for 2024 would be this. Uh, folks, uh, to our friends out there who, who either don't like Republicans or don't like Donald Trump or never voted Republicans before, I, I just have one single sentence to say. There is a curtain on the voting booth. In other words, you can vote for a better economy, for all of these things, still hate the man, and more than anything, still claim to have voted for Joe Biden, and you can virtue signal your way to the, to the end of the road, and you still get all the benefits of having elected somebody who had the number one economy in the history of this country, and who's record with unemployment for minorities is unsurpassed and, and, and who we didn't have any military adventures during, during Trump's. You get all those benefits. You can go right out of that booth and say, my God, I'm so happy I, I cast a vote to throw that incredible bad orange man out of office. And nobody has to know. That's where I would be. Super chat from JDoc says, uh, did you see what former Vice President Joe Biden did to the Medal of Honor recipient he awarded it to the other day? Oh, no. 
No, I did not. It's going to be something. Let me just put a tab. I've learned to when I get things that are interesting in this show, I put it like a, I just put a tab on it so that I, after the show's over, I can remember. He walked out before the ceremony was finished. Okay. Um, here's your choices, uh, Biden supporters. He's either so shockingly, unbearably, treasonously, unpatriotic that he thought it was appropriate to walk out on a ceremony honoring the very smallest, highest sacrifice in, in our country's history. He's either so anti-American and so plain traitorous to the ideals of this country that he, that he could walk away from this, or he's so far gone that he didn't know that the ceremony hadn't finished yet. It's possible he's both, but he's one or the other. There's no other explanation for it. He's one or the other. He's checking his watch while the coffins are coming off the plane. He is the worst man that we have ever had as president, character-wise. And that goes... There's some, there's some real contenders here. Real contenders. Um, I suspect... I haven't seen the clip. I'll look at it after the show's over. I suspect that he just plain thought it was ice cream time and just walked away from it. And that's not what's shocking. What's shocking is that something like half of the country thinks that's okay because he's a Democrat. Um, Steve Young. Cases often made in our conservative echo chamber that Americans are safer overseas in full-blown combat zones than we are in America's big cities. Is that an effective anti-Democrat message to try to send during the presidential campaigns? Uh, I think a version of it is. I wouldn't phrase it anything like that way. I would basically say, I don't know what the, the last time I checked, the black-on-black the, the -black murder rate is something like 8,000 Americans a year. If it were me, I would say every year we have more than two 9-11s of a catastrophe. We've had it every year since, well, since the 60s, if not, yeah, at least the 60s. For the length of time that Democrats have been governing our cities, we get a 9-11 in those cities every six months. 8,000 people were murdered last year in democratically controlled cities because they're democratically controlled cities. And there's the data. So if you're, if you're a person who's spent your life voting Democrat because you feel like that's better for black Americans, then you need to accept the fact that your votes have gone to a murder machine that kills 8,000 black people a year. That's just the murder rate. It's got nothing to do with Planned Parenthood and the whole abortion thing. That's just the, that's just the murder rate. And New York is, is, the, is the control group that proves the rule. 
New York was the murder capital of the country until they elected a Republican. Then it's not in the top 20 for three decades. On its way back up again, because now you voted for a far-left guy, and they got another far-left guy. They're not enforcing the law. You can't walk down the streets of New York anymore. Pretty soon, the idea of being able to walk through Central Park at 3 in the morning without a care in the world is going to be as foreign to people as the idea was when I was walking through it with my wife, remembering what it was like when I was a kid. My dad, I was there in 1979. My dad was uh, finished his hotel career at the, um, the Taft, I think. And he said, don't cross the street ever. You never, Especially after dark, you do not go south of the street or west of the street or whatever. And, and we were walking through. My friend and I were just like, this place is terrifying. So I would just basically say yes. These people who claim to be the champions of, of, of black people are the ones whose policies are getting them murdered. And here's the data. And not only that, this is what they've always done. The Confederacy was the Democratic Party leaving the Union. Google it. And Google it quickly before they change it. Han shot first, by the way, if you don't think that the history can be rewritten. Something along those lines is how I do it. You got a Charles Tones, got a Marcia Dark, and a Jacob Belchak. Yeah, we'll get through these. Starting to feel I need some Tylenol. I think that um, starting to get really sore again. This whole like I, I don't know how it moved. I don't know what's going on up here. It's not as bad as it was the day before. I promised Natasha I'd go to the dentist if it got worse. It's getting better, but it's I don't know what it is. Um, all right, so we got Charles Tomes there. Uh, okay. Here's Darth Chuck. Okay, great. Um, from an undisclosed location in flyover country in a state with a balanced budget and no debt, Char Darth Chuck the Merciless pontificates. Well, that, well, that kind of introduction. There needs to be some kind of a music sting, I think. With the presidential primary season sneaking up on us and the Donald polling between somewhere to 50 and 60% ahead of second place, it's not his number, that's, how, that's his lead, the only real question remaining seems to be whether the Democrat fraud machine will be enough to overcome the stench of full depends and the screeching hyena and give us another... <laughs> full depends and the screeching hyena, that's the, the, um, the dynamic duo that runs the country, you know. Or that's the dynamic duo that they tell us runs the country. But neither one of them can find them their way out of a parking lot, so you have to ask yourself some questions. Will that give us another four years of the sniff and blow show? Or, oh, dude, or will Republicans come to their senses and actually show up to vote to win? Um, I never cease to be disappointed by um, Republican turnout. Every time I think, I've been doing this, well, I've been doing strictly political stuff since 2008, so 15 years. Uh, and I'm always sure that this will be the time that people are finally going to say they've got enough, and, and they don't, because there's a, a problem. There's some, some problem with somebody. I didn't like this, and I didn't like this, so I decided I'm not going to vote this year. Okay. All right. Um... I'm not going to argue with you. Uh, I have in the past. I'm not going to do it anymore. It's not my place to tell you what your value system is. If there's something about this guy that means you cannot vote for him, that's fine. 
my attitude on it is I think there are many things about the guy that I don't like either, but it's one or the other, and that is the reality on the ground. And if you decide not to vote for the guy who you don't like, then you are guaranteeing the election of the guy who you really genuinely hate. Uh, and so I don't personally feel like that um, I'm not voting because I have a problem with this or that. I, I just, I've seen the results of this for 15 years, and it's the erosion and the destruction of the republic. So whether they show up or not, I don't know. Um, last heartbreak, of course, was the 2022 elections, which I was quite certain were going to be something of a shocking um, reversal of fortune, and it was just just a just a piff, you know, just like a little poof. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the a lot of the conservatives and the Republican of, the, of this country have put their faith in Donald Trump to the to the um, exclusion of all others, and that's the best explanation I can come up with for why 2022 went as badly as it did. But that's not. A long-term strategy so is that going to affect 2024 I don't know as far as the election fraud goes I've covered this many times I think the cases the states with the with the most robust um, fraudulent mechanisms in place are states that we're not going to win anyway I'd be much more concerned about the usual suspects right Georgia Ohio Pennsylvania Arizona um, I used to think and, and was told that there was a margin of victory and then there was a margin of victory beyond which the margin of cheating could occur. But from the data I was seeing at the 2020 elections, the voting machines were responding to what that result needed to be in more or less real time and constantly adjusting the uh, electronic algorithms to produce the desired result. Um, that's what it looked like to me. And regardless of whether that happened or not, Five states stopped counting, which has never happened before. And the next day, all of those states had shown a massive increase in votes for Joe Biden. No one is arguing that that didn't happen. They're just trying to say, well, that doesn't mean anything. I think it means quite a lot. Um, I think it means quite a lot when the, I can never remember if it's a state part center, the all-state center in Georgia, in Atlanta, they said they had to close it because of a water main leak. But there was no water main leak. That's evidence. You know, it's evidence. So I don't know, Chuck. We're going to see. Uh, but uh, I think my position on this has been pretty much the same. I can't. I despise people that are doing evil and destruction to this country, but that's their motivation. The part I can't understand is the people who also see this and don't do anything about it. I really just don't get that at all. Um, okay, so we got a Marusha, and we got a second Eric, which we're going to have to skip, I'm afraid. And then we've got a, um, uh, a Jacob, so I think we'll get, get this done. Richard Dark, uh, risk and failure. Um, Billy Buffin, it's going to take a little while here. Um, we really do have to make these things shorter, guys, honestly. Um, you've often praised Elon for his willingness to take 
risks that might ultimately fail. You've also talked about sunk cost fallacy. SpaceX came very close to bankruptcy, but hit a critical success at the right time in order to bounce back from it instead of completely crashing. I hate to single you out, but I'm still waiting for the question. In their case, they were able to hold on long enough for luck to catch up with them, and it turned out to be the right decision. However, not everyone is so fortunate. Some people stop an inch before striking oil and bet everything only to find nothing for their efforts. So I was wondering if you could talk about what might happen. Here's the question. What might happen if and when things break the other way? You take necessary risks to improve your situation and rise to meet the opportunity, but opportunity never comes or comes in time. That's the question. And now there's more. Recently, I've come to the to find that the adage, things can always be worth, doesn't bring much comfort and doesn't do anything to actually solve the problems that cause suffering in the first place. I agree. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger unless it cripples you for life. I don't need to be constantly, you know, if, if, if suffering builds character, I've, I've said many times at this point, Lord, without any disrespect whatsoever, I think I've got all the character I need to get me the rest of the way home. Um, then it just becomes needless misery and suffering could have been avoided. Of course, there's often no way to know beyond beforehand which way things will break. So in the abstract, you, of course, need to take risks for anything to get better. But the uncertainty is often why people become risk averse in the first place. Again, uh, and I, I'm not trying to signal you out. It's just that this is this is why we don't get through more of these things. Um, how do you convince the risk averse that it's worth go to keep going when all the evidence they has they have points to the contrary. So the two questions are what might happen if and when things break the other way if you take necessary risks? What might happen if you take necessary risks to improve your situation and rise to meet opportunity but opportunity never comes or never comes in time? How do you convince the risk averse it's worth it to keep going? when all the evidence they have points to the contrary. So we can do this in two sentences if we want to. And it's, a, and it's an excellent question. If you've got a crush on a girl and you don't ask her out, then your chance of, 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 of being with her is zero. If you do ask her out, you may think your chances are low, but they're not zero. And um, and this is why Michael Jordan's ad was so effective, you know, and that statement, I, I miss 100% of the shots that I don't take. It's the truest thing ever said. You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. If you're confronted with a situation where you're afraid that if I try this, I might fail, you need to understand from the beginning that by not trying, you fail in advance. You 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 no longer have a chance of success. You you have taken what was a chance of success and turned it into guaranteed failure by not by not taking the shot. And the good news in these things is, is that it's not like you get one chance. If you if you really want to prepare yourself for this kind of thing, you need to understand. Number one, you miss all the shots you don't take, which means you have to keep trying and keep going out there. And number two, it is not only possible, but it's easy to learn from your failures. So as long as you're not psychotic enough to keep making the same bad mistake again and again and again, and certainly I've been guilty of that for stretches in my life, then your odds get better. So 
what are your choices? Your choices are you want something. Okay. So now your now your your choice is I either want to do something about it or I don't. If you don't, you don't get what you want 100% of the time. If you do, you might get what you want on the first try. If you don't get it on the first try, you're likely to learn something from the experience so that when you try the second time, your odds will improve. And the more of this you do, the higher the odds become until finally they approach 100%. You don't have to have 100% odds to have a 100% chance of success. If you have an 80% chance of succeeding and you do it 25 do it 20 times, that is as that is equivalent to having a 100% chance of success. Does that make sense? When you're dealing with those kind of numbers, just, just take a coin flip, right? Let's say just say you have a 50-50 chance. Okay, so you go at it the first time, you got a half a 50-50 chance. Some of the time, half the time you're, you're going to win the first time, second time you're not. If you go at it again and you also have a 50-50 chance, now your total chance over twice is... 75%. Sorry. Uh, you're calling heads. You flip a coin. If it's heads, you win. If it's tails, you lose. You flip the coin again, you're calling heads. Only need to hit heads once. Now it's not one out of two. Now it's... now it's. How do I explain? You, you get the idea. You can't flip a coin ten times in a row and get heads ten times. I guarantee you, it's extremely difficult to get it done five times. In fact, there was somebody, some scientist, I think it was a, a nuclear scientist, may have been a foreign guy who was working for the DOD or something, you know, somebody like Einstein, a, a, a scientist who'd come to America or something. Anyway, the, the story goes that this guy said, well, you're about to meet General so-and-so. And I said, okay, well, why is this important? Because he's a very successful general. How do you define him as being a successful general? He said, well, he's won five battles in a row. And the scientist says, Bring me a general who's won 10 battles in a row, and that guy will have my full respect. Because that's how the law of averages work. You can essentially say that your chance of success becomes 100% if you, if you continue to try and you, and you improve your technique every time you go to bat. It becomes a number that is, for all intents, it is 100%. It's not, it's not like close to 100%. It, the nearest whole number is 100%. So given that information, I think the question you really should be asking is not whether or not you should take the shot. The question you should be asking is what are you afraid of if you get it because you already don't have it and you're not going to do anything about it, so you're going to be in your unhappy but comfortable state what is it about succeeding that you're afraid of? Not so much that you think you're worried about failing. That's not the case. You've already failed. You're in failure right now. You want this thing. You haven't done it. You're failing right now. You're in a state of failure and you're talking yourself into remaining into a perpetual state of failure. So what is it about winning that makes you so incapacitated? That's how I would frame that particular argument personally. And I think I just talked myself into something somehow. Um, okay. Uh, of course, we have the audience that we have. Uh, let's go. Brandon says, let's go, Brandon. says, you have a 1 in 1,024 chance to get heads 10 times in a row. It's 1 in 1,000. 
And uh, can you tell me what it is to get heads 20 times in a row? Because it's not one in 2,000. I'm waiting for the hive mind to respond just because I'm curious. Yeah, so you have a, so you have, so one in a thousand is 99.9. .9. You have a 99.9% .9 chance of success or failure, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, I think we have one more here. We do. Um, Jacob Belchek. I'm waiting for my statistic machine for my, 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 uh, Computertron 3000 is chewing on the problem. Uh, from Jacob Belchek. Hi, Jacob, and thank you for the kind words always. Um, saw a headline today that confirmed what we already know. The Democrats in office vote in lockstep and Republicans in office break ranks all the time. What do you think is the principle that keeps Democrats united? Is it possible to implement that principle on our side? <laughs> thank you. So if you try it, if you try to flip ten coin, uh, if you try to flip heads ten times in a row, it's one in ten thousand and twenty-four. If you try to flip, in other words, if you go to bat ten times, the chance of you succeeding is one. If it's a fifty-fifty percent chance every time you go to bat, you go to bat ten times, you essentially have a thousand to one ratio of success. If you go to bat twenty times. you have essentially one in, if you go if you're trying to flip coins 10 times and you have a 50% chance of success you will lose 0.1% of the time if you flip it 20 times you will lose 0.0001% of the time it's one in a thousand versus one in a million you see that? You doubled the amount of times you're flipping coins, but you multiplied the chances of success by an order of a thousand. You didn't double your chances of success. You multiplied it by a thousand. <sighs> really something. Uh, okay, so Jacob, uh, what, what's the principle that keeps Democrats united? You know, actually, there's, a, I think, a simple answer for this, and that is a change, right? That's, that's, the, that's the big thing. Um, with all of these people. This is what Obama ran on and was successful with in 2008. And whenever you hear people out there protesting, and every time you hear progressives or liberals or whatever you want to call them talking about things, what do you want? Oh, we want change. What kind of change? Well, we want change on the environment. Well, okay, let's not talk about why you believe that. What do you want to change? We want to get rid of fossil fuels. Okay, what are you going to put in its place? Well, we don't know. We'll let somebody else figure that out. But we want to change. We want to change this. We want to change that. We want to change the electoral system. We want to change the electoral college. We want to change the social structure. We want to change the names of the, of the military bases. We want to change, 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 change. So they want this vague thing that's got a D on it. And they're convinced that if they get this thing called change with the D, then things will get better. They don't know what change they want. And they don't know what choices there will be if they get the change. And they don't even know whether or not a change is possible, but they do know that they want something to change. And what they want is usually impossible, like free health care, for example. I'm voting D because I want change. What change do you want? I want everybody to have free health care. Well, that's just great. That's fantastic. I want everybody to have free health care too. But health care isn't free, and it never will be. It's actually extremely expensive, 
So you're voting for a, a, a mirage. It's a chimera. It doesn't exist. It's it's a it's a it's an impossibility. And it's kind of like saying, which side are you on in terms of do you who, who do you think would win? The irresistible force or the immovable object? Pick one. And they will pick one. I'm going to go with the immovable object. What they don't realize is, it took me a while until somebody finally explained this to me too, it turns out that that is a, that is a, it's an oxymoron. Which is stronger, the irresistible force or the immovable object? Which one would win? If you put the irresistible force against the immovable object, which one would win? Well, they happen to think that, let's just say, the immovable object would win. But that's, it's, it's not even a question of, of, of a chance because if there is an immovable object, then there cannot be an irresistible force. That's the definition of an immovable object. There is no force great enough to move an immovable object. Likewise, if you have an irresistible force, there cannot be an immovable object. That's the definition of an irresistible force. So when you say which would win, the immovable object or the irresistible force, you are speaking in terms that are, are it's like dividing by zero. There is no answer to this question. And the, and, and the fact that you think that this is a choice means you don't understand the definitions. You're trying to say we want the irresistible object to win or the immovable force to win, when in fact, if there is an immovable force, there is there is no in an immovable object, there is no irresistible force. It's a logical fallacy. Yes, Roadrunner says. You cannot have free health care no matter how much you want to, because it's not free. And so if you're voting for free health care, you are voting for an illusion. And furthermore, you're voting for an illusion that someone has sold to you for some reason. So you have to ask yourself, why has somebody convinced you that there is such a thing as free health care? Because you're not an idiot. You're just not thinking deeply about it. You know as well as I do that health care isn't free. What you're talking about is you want health care that's paid for by somebody else, and usually that means you want health care paid for by the government. But it's not free, and we both know it. So stop calling it free. Now, if you want government paid for health care, that is something that is achievable. So let's talk about government paid for healthcare and how it works in the, in, in the rest of the world and see if that's the world you really want to be in. But we don't, we don't even do that. We let them, we, we just let them, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat because I'm in favor of free healthcare. And we just go, well, I'm not. No, I'm not in favor of free healthcare. And you lose because, because because they're masters of rhetoric, and we're children. Here's a big Republican versus the Democrat nominee for president of the United States. Democrat nominee says, I'm in favor of free health care for everybody. What does a Republican say? I'm not in favor of free health care for everybody. I'm in favor of private health care. Do they ever say, ever, he's either an idiot or a liar, ladies and gentlemen, because he is smart enough to know that healthcare is not free. It's expensive. It costs money. When he is selling you free healthcare, he's lying to you. And he knows it. 
And you should know it too. He's lying. No one's going to perform open heart surgery for free. The hospital has to pay its electric bills. The surgeon has to pay his rent. All of these supplies have to be there. It's not free. So when he says, I am for free health care, he's lying to you, and you know it because you know it's not free. So start asking yourself why he is lying to you. I'm telling you that the best way to get the most health care for people is to do it through these mechanisms in terms of the private enterprise and competition, which is why health care costs so much money and auto care costs a little money. He's in favor of making sure that you have no choice whatsoever, and I'm saying you should have at least as many choices with your body as your car does. I think your car, I think you deserve as much as many opportunities as your car has. Your car has hundreds of companies competing for for its insurance dollar. He's saying, no, this is how we're going to do it. There's no competition. There's no reason to cut costs. So it just gets more and more expensive. And since it gets more and more expensive, more and more people wait in line for longer and longer times. And more and more people die because they don't get the treatment that they get that they should get because the healthcare is so expensive because there's no reason for it not to be expensive. Nobody's Nobody's responsible for it. There is no competition. There's nothing driving the prices down. And so you end up with the worst of all worlds. He knows this is true. So why isn't he telling you the truth? He, you can, look, you can disagree about whether, whether you want private health care or, or public health care. But the one thing that you cannot agree on is that it's free. And I'm making the case that the best way to get the prices down low enough so that you can distribute as much of it as possible is through things like competition. Insurance companies are not allowed to, are not allowed to compete ag- across state lines. Car companies, my car has 100 choices. I have two and what's keeping the cost of those two? And those two choices, by the way, are not competing with each other. They're just two different shades of the same. I have one choice, essentially. So what makes you think that healthcare is going to get less expensive? It's going to get more expensive. If it's more expensive, how much of it do you think there will be? If something is more expensive, do you think there'll be more of it? Or do you think there'll be more of it if it were less expensive? Do you think there's more sand on the ground or diamonds? Which one do you think? Well, I'm going to say that you're more likely to run into a giant pile of sand than you are into a giant pile of diamonds because diamonds are worth more than sand, and that's why there's more sand available to you than there are diamonds. And he's doing the same thing with healthcare. And honest to God, we should not even be having a conversation this... It's not even stupid. It's just plain fraudulent. And this chowderhead knows it, and I know it. And he knows I know it, and I know he knows it. We're fighting for what you know. We're trying to we're trying to fight for what you know to be true. So, is healthcare free? You can't possibly say that it is. Do lower prices result from competition? Yes. If the cost of healthcare goes down because of competition. Would we have more health care for a dollar or would we have less health care? If we've got $100 to spend on health care and health care gets more expensive, how much health care do we have for our $100 versus we have $100 of health care to spend 
and healthcare gets less and less expensive, get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Do you think you can buy more healthcare with $100 if it's cheaper? Or do you think you can buy more healthcare with $100 if it's expensive? This is a simple question, and you, and you, and you make this decision every day. You make this decision hundreds of times a day. I'm not blaming you, Mr. and Mrs. Average Voter. It's not your fault that these, that these liars and, and manipulators have been telling you this, this obvious lie for your entire life. How are you going to know? How are you going to know what I've just told you that, that is just obvious on its face? How, how would you know that? They control all the information access. They control all social media. Why do they have to control it if they're right? If they really are right, if these plans of theirs are really, really good, then, then they should be happy to have chowderheads like me come and make the case for something different, because if what they're dealing with is so good, they should be able to take me to pieces. But that's not what's happening. They're not only not taking me to pieces on my argument, they're making sure that you don't hear me, because they know that if you do, your own brain will tell you which answer is correct. I see the rest of my time to the, to the moderator. <sighs> all right. Well, we got through all the questions. We didn't get through doubles, but, you know, I'll define the limit of spaceflight by how high I can go. Um, all right, so that's going to do it, I think, for this uh, um, Edition of the uh, Stratosphere Lounge uh, made possible by the members of BillWiddle.com. Bless their hearts, and I don't mean that in the, in the um, ironic way. Uh, thanks again for everything. Thanks for being here. Thanks for keeping light on to all of you members. Thanks for watching the show, if you're, if you're watching the show. And uh, for all of your continued patience and, and kind words and donations and kind thoughts and all the rest. It means the world to me. It means the world to Natasha, too. She watches most of these shows, screen caps a lot of the comments for me, and when I tell her some of the emails that we get from you and, and some of the things you say about her as well, it's just enough to make us both um, get a little, you know, a little dust in our eye. So there's that. Um, so um, we will continue to be working on all these things, and uh, hopefully we'll have some updates for you on Monday. But uh, right now I've got to get this interview show cracked up and going, so that's the, the very next step. And I'm hoping we can record some video next week. We'll see. All right. Um, that'll do it. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to sign off on YouTube first. So we're going to push that button right here. And as far as YouTube is concerned, uh, adios YouTube. Hurra. And now we're here with our, um, we're here with our hardcore Twitch uh, stream, which is where the good people are. We already, we've always known. It's not really much doubt about that. Time for you to go too, so we'll see you guys hopefully on Monday night. And um, until then, take care of yourselves and uh, don't take any wooden nickels. <laughs>